All right, we're live. Welcome to the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neil. That would make me terrible, Troy. I'm Treacherous Trista. And we're joined by legendary horror filmmaker Brian Usna. It's very cool to have you here. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Yeah. So this is our this month we're doing Doctors of December month. So I thought you were a perfect guest uh, to come on the show. I've done a couple doctors. <laughs> Yes, yeah. I hate to ask well, if I you mean, have a, a favorite. A dent, a yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Just, uh, I think a dentist, still, we can still consider them a doctor. I, I know. So. I know there's a big thing going on right now about who you can call a doctor or not. But oh, right. Yeah. We'll leave that to another show, I think. So uh, to go back, I'm wearing the reanimator shirt. So to go back to the original reanimator, how did you get involved to be the producer? Well, I optioned the material and developed it. I, I, um, Stuart Gordon had, uh, with his partners, had um, written a, a pilot for a TV show based on Reanimator. And I liked the idea, but I wanted to do a feature. So I optioned it and hired them to develop it into a feature. And then I raised the money to make it. So I, I got the job of producer by paying for the movie. <laughs> and you'll find that this is a truism throughout the uh, entertainment industry or the movie business. Uh -huh. And that is that if you pay for the movie, you can do whatever you want on it. You can star <laughs> in it. You can... Write the music, you can direct it, you can do anything. What's uh -huh. hard is not to pay for it and to get it done. <laughs> that's the secret. Right, right. Uh, that's interesting that it was he wanted it to be a, a TV series because it's kind of, I think, before it's time because now, you know, like a short, you know, like a eight or 13 episode series is like, a, is more of a thing that happens today than, than what happened at the time. Well, you have to understand that back then there really wasn't even cable the way we see it now. I think this was 1983, um, and so we probably wrote it in 82. Um, the, um, at that time, there was HBO and Cinemax, but there, and there was CNN. <laughs> But that was there yeah, wasn't it probably wouldn't have fit on CNN. table, yeah. and um, so it wasn't. You know, now we look at he wrote it for TV, not for cable. They wanted a, it to be on broadcast television, and um, but at that time, of course, I was I wanted to get into the movie business. I, yeah. I wasn't interested in the TV business. Mm -hmm. Now, for example, I'm all about being interested in in limited series yeah. on cable, because that's, that's kind of where everything's gone um, mm -hmm. as far as doing interesting things. Uh, I mean, of course you can with movies, but the idea that you make a, you can have a story go six hours is kind of fun or 12 or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, on broadcast, it would be, like a broadcast show, especially back then, it would be, you couldn't do a lot of the um, 
extreme stuff by yeah, any the, the head scene would not be happening back like on that wasn't in the original yes. oh, okay script. yeah now the original script actually ended with halsey getting reanimated so if you know the movie that's sort of the middle of it the, it's when uh, and and um, Dr. Hill wasn't in the script, so there was no guy without a head. That was just the direction we developed it. Mm -hmm. um, I had never read the stories until uh, until after I read the pilot, and so I read the stories and I saw there was a guy carrying his head around, and I thought, well, I'm going to risk my future and borrow money to make a movie and it's going to be a horror movie. By God, I want the guy with that carrying his head around. I've always been a fan of those movies with the talking heads, the brain that wouldn't die, the, you know, those things to me, that means horror. Yeah. 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 You made a wise, wise decision, <laughs> <laughs> but could, uh, going like full circle, could you, could you see that today working as a, as a series, a reanimator series. Sure, I've tried. I'm, I'm trying to to do that. I've had interest. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure exactly how you do it. Um, it's you know there was something kind of unique about what Stuart laid down in Reanimator, based on his his um, career up to that time of being a theater director and one who loved to shock his audience. The, I think, and he, I think back in the reanimator era, you know, the early 80s, even into the mid 80s, um, that kind of gore was, um, was something that you, that was pretty much strictly a horror movie um, element. Um, after you know, into the late '80s and into the '90s, um, the action movies started um, incorporating a lot of gore. Mm -hmm. So it they kind of appropriated that part of you know some of the horror movie conventions. You know, with um, with series like Rambo and you know where you just you know you'll not only ran around and shot weapons and punch people, but there was a lot of um, a lot of horror to it as well. Uh, did you ever feel that they could get away with more since they weren't uh, labeled as horror? Um, yes, and I think that I mean I think the first action movie, and this goes before the '80s, of course, the first action movie that really set down that aesthetic was the Wild Bunch, I think, the Peckinpah movie. Mm -hmm. And the shootout at the end of that is full of blood bags and stuff. And up till then, a lot of a lot of shooting, you know, they'd get a little pinprick of red <laughs> and fall dead, you know. Um, but they, I think, yes, they, um, especially independent horror movies, have always had to um, to fight a little harder to keep excessive or extreme um elements uh but it's not so much the genre although that does include it but it has to do with um the size of the movies the um mpaa used to sit pretty hard on independent movies horror movies 
Uh, whereas when someone like Spielberg had a heart being ripped out in the um, Indiana, the second Indiana Jones movie, they just went ahead and made a new category for yeah, it. PG thirteen. You know, and I think, and I certainly noticed that in the eighties and nineties. With Reanimator, I never submitted it for a rating. It doesn't have a rating. It's unrated. And the reason I didn't is because it just I just knew that they would just cut out all the good stuff. And um or at least what I thought was the payoff stuff. Yeah. Um I I'm, which is not to say that the movie wouldn't have worked just mm-hmm. because it's it it's a good movie. Um in certain different territories they always um, edited the movies and that's continued on to today although not near as as um, as far uh, because now with digital it's too easy to get everything everywhere so you re- you know countries really have a hard time um, truly editing the movies but when you would when you sell a movie, and like I said, it was much more like this in the 80s, 90s than it is today. You give the you give the foreign territory that buys it the ability to to um, change the title and to edit the movie according to their their censorship. And different places have different issues. So, for example. In certain parts of Asia, um, especially China, anything to do with the supernatural is they don't want, but they might accept, you know, lots, you know, in Japan, you can't show any genitalia, <laughs> you know, so they fuzz it out. Um, and I think they still do that. In, um, you know, in England, they had this era of what they call video nasties mm-hmm. in the 80s. Uh, you know, there's this tendency uh, for uh, different countries to, and here too, to blame um, horror movies for violence. So if somebody does something bad and they also watched horror movies, they say that um, that violence comes from the movies. Um, but um, of course that would, that's kind of ridiculous on the face of it. There's been a whole lot of violence in this world before movies were ever invented. Right. Yeah. The, and they, you know, I think it's the nature of people. But that, but they do that. And they, mm. and so they had this idea. I think there was some killings in, in the UK. I don't know if it was in the late 70s, or early 80s. It was when the video started, you know, as a real thing. Um, and they, they decided that it was based on this guy watching horror movies and so they called them video nasties and they they made it um you know they started cutting they started um kind of censoring pretty heavily so a movie like reanimator when it was first released in england um it had like i think 10 minutes cut out of it, you know, I mean, a lot of time. So you would have never seen the head giving head scene or anything like that. Um, But you could see it at a, at a cinema club, you could see the uncut one. So the British had a, 
like in this country, we have this idea that your home is your castle. You know, you can mm-hmm. kill somebody if they try to get in right. and you can do whatever you want in your home mm-hmm. and you can watch whatever you want. And so that's how we look at it. So videos were more acceptable in the home in the United States, whereas if you're showing something in a movie theater, it's a public showing, they're more liable to you have more um problems with showing something that's considered bad for society. In the UK, they consider that if you put it in a club, it's okay, but you can't do anything in your own home. Right, this is reverse. Yeah, a yeah. little bit of it, you can't take those things into your home. Yeah, sweet. that's um, odd. But, but every, every, every country has this. The, um, um, in Germany, there's, they are specific, you know, very difficult. Um, even now, they're much more difficult, and there they will ex- they ex- have always accepted lots of um, sex and nudity, but not but not violent gore, and never um, gore with with um, women like sex and violence. It's mm-hmm. totally out of it. Um, whereas here we are all very squeamish about sex, but we're very easy about violence. Uh, it's, it's cultural, cultural stuff. But I think everything's opened up so much. I mean, I mean, some movies that I mean, some of the stuff that I've had to kind of cut out of movies were a little silly. You know? So was it hard to get to get the movie released uh, as an uncut? Like, was it hard to get cinemas no. to play it? Well, it's, um, it's, it, what's hard is to show it at a at a cineplex um, and to advertise. So back then, mm-hmm. so the idea was if it wasn't rated, that marks it as a porno, right? Yeah. There there never was an X rating by the. I don't think there was ever an X rating, was there? Or yeah, there was, but then at, at the beginning, X was kind of more adult, like. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Midnight Cowboy was X-rated. Yeah, and it won the Academy Award. Mm-hmm. So the idea of X-rating originally was that certain things would be would just tell you that this is for this is adult material yeah. and it's not yeah. for even kids. that term. If you say something's for adult today, people assume that it means it's Porn. pornographic. Yeah, but then the porno industry started because Midnight Cowboy, I, I forget, wasn't that late sixties or early? I think maybe early seventies. Yeah, I was thinking but, maybe seventy, seventy-one. But that's the same time that um, Deep Throat came out, and The Devil and Miss Jones, and and these were there was this idea back then that porn was going to be like this, just another genre that mm-hmm. it was, you know, and these movies and people would go see them, and and um, you know, you would you could go to the movies. And and they would show a trailer for a hardcore porno movie with hardcore scenes right. in the trailer. Yes. And it wasn't, but that was just a brief period of time. And porn and with and they tried to make porn movies that were that were um, bigger budget oh. that actually had production values and stories and and all this kind of stuff. 
And if you remember, even Francis Ford Coppola, when he was ma making one from the heart, he wanted it to be have explicit sex in it because he this was considered something that was coming. Mm -hmm. um, but I think especially with video, the it all changed and um, and it got to be more and more just kind of, you know, cheaper and and kind of more of a it's always had kind of a, a lot of I don't know if it's underworld, but at least shady kind of kind of. Um, of you know affinities like you always feel like the porn is a is uh you know it's, it's not really on the up and up and i think a lot of that's because a lot of it is made with um with first of all um you know non-tax paid money right. <laughs> and and incorporating um you know um sexual exploitation especially of women um you know the prostitution and sexual exploitation and so it sort of had that kind of feeling to it you know and um with video they just got cheaper and cheaper i'm sure you've seen boogie nights yeah i was i was thinking of boogie nights because that's kind of the story in there with the with uh, the story is with that the director the, you know, he he's totally to against a great yeah, movie yeah but they're just getting cheaper and cheaper and now of course on the internet it's broken down completely anybody and can have a channel with porn and make the money directly. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be done. I mean, if that's sort of the business you want to be in. Yeah, it's not. And horror, and horror is just one step up from porn, you know, yeah. in the hierarchy of film. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always been pretty much, un, you know, not really a respectable genre. Um, oh. Along those lines, uh, when you decided to get involved in horror movies, uh, did any of your family or friends like say, you know, oh, don't get involved in that? No, um, I had, I had um, pretty much done whatever I wanted for quite a while <laughs> um, since I left, since I left home, um, and I don't know. It was, it's what I liked. I always liked mm -hmm. horror movies. You know, I was a, a fan and I, I don't know, I, I didn't really ask anybody for their opinion, I guess is what I should say. Good. <laughs> and I, and I showed my, my family, I mean, I, I wasn't ever not proud of the movies I made. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying they were all good or they, they're all wonderful movies or not, not through lack of effort. Mm -hmm. You know, I tried on every one, but I produced direct, whatever. Yeah. It's just that sometimes they don't work out, you know. And yes, uh, I'm not, I wouldn't say I was proud of those, but I just mean in the sense that no, I, I never, I never felt like the, the material was, I always thought it was kind of exhilarating sometimes to cross borders. Uh, you said you're always a fan of horror movies. Were there any like particular ones that like made you a fan right away? Well, when I, I, I when I was a little kid, when I was, I guess when I was six or something, we used to go to the Sunday matinee for kids, and um, and I lived in, I would I was brought up in Latin America, 
So I was living in Panama at that time. And um, we didn't have television. This is the 50s. And um, the um, I wanted, you'd see a double feature and some Three Stooges cartoons, maybe a Dick Tracy RKO serial. And, and one time they showed the creature with the atom brain. And that's kind of a, it's about, you know, they put these kind of tarantula looking things inside the brain of dead people. And they have these TV monitors to make them go do bad things. And they're zombies basically. And that really, um, really bothered me. I couldn't sleep for nights. And my, you know, my mother vowed we'd never go back to see the Sunday matinee. And, and, um, but I think that that kind of gave me the bug. And, and I, you know, and I saw, then I, you know, I saw like the seventh voyage of Sinbad and that was, really nightmarish um, with some of the effects. And and finally, when I got a little older, I remember seeing House on Haunted Hill, and that was sort of my speed, because that was just for fun, you know? And along the way, of course, there was the Hammer stuff, which was pretty disturbing, because they actually, it was in color, and there was like red blood and heaving breasts, and, you know, every time they'd mix the sex with the with the horror, it seems like it'd always be more disturbing. Mm-hmm. But I think sex and horror, sex and death is what horror is about anyway, this and viscerally, right? So it was, you know, those kinds of movies really, you know, really, um, you know, the fly, the, you know, I just loved everything to do with transformations. Um, and I read, I would read ghost stories and, you know, I just, and I, from the time I was, had a dime, I bought these horror comics, you know, the old EC comics. comics yeah. and, oh, and, awesome. Yeah. And they were always full of people eating brains and <laughs> husbands killing their wives and the wives coming back to suck their brains. And, <laughs> you know, it's just really crazy stuff. Yeah. But I don't know why I really was into it. I just always had that tendency and I've noticed it in my kind of extended family uh, you know one one of one of my brother's sons was into horror you know and my I've got four grandkids and you know I let my kids see anything from the time they could toddle over to the yeah Troy and I are brothers uh, and I always our had mom a was the same way TV. So, yeah and I'd show them anything and they came to the sets and the whole thing, but none of them really got into horror, you know, and they saw every, they were in the movies, you know, <laughs> and, um, but my daughter's daughter, who's only five now for no good reason. I mean, on the one hand, she wears princess skirts and, you know, <laughs> Moana and, you know, um, all these, um, kind of um, LOL toys, and but she's really into scary stuff and the making scary drawings. And she rides in the car. She has a little skeleton strapped next to her, her friend. <laughs> and you, and who knows why? She's never ever been 
kind of exposed to anything like that, you know? So I don't know, maybe I used to think it was because uh, you became a horror fan because you had some traumatic horror movie experience that kind of stuck with you and you became kind of like an addict. At first it makes you sick and then you become addicted to it. You mm-hmm. know? But maybe not, maybe it's just that, you know, it's sort of some weird DNA mix. Yeah. Where you where you think scary stuff is fun. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised that like uh, over the like maybe probably the last ten years that like zombies have really become mainstream? Because like wow. uh, everywhere is zombies. Like you can get like it's a little kid's t shirt. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah because I I remember when when Night Night of the Living Dead first came out. And I consider that movie to be like the beginning of yeah, modern but, horror, yeah. you know, of this era's horror. I think it starts with the Night of the Living Dead. Uh, I'm, and it's not like there was, weren't just lots of crazy stuff like that anyway. It's just that this one tended to kind of work, you know. And um, and as, you know, as it, we went further, uh, I remember that, because when Reanimator came out, that was also when Return of the Living Dead came out. And of course, there had already been Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead and, you know, Shock Trooper or Shock Troopers, Shockwave. Shockwave, yeah. And Zombie, and, you know, these Mario Baba things, mm-hmm. you know. And so there was always, you know, there's always been a lot of stuff like that. I mean, it's a staple of horror is that something comes back from the dead. Mm-hmm. When I got the job to direct and produce and develop um, the the second sequel to Return of the Living Dead, um, they, I wondered, I really wanted to do it um, because I liked both Night of the Living Dead and I like Return to the Living Dead. I, I think too. Dan O'Bannon, you know, he's the first one who solved the problem of how to put DC Comics on screen. Before that, they did stuff like creep show or comic books and movies. They would actually show a frame and they would try to make it look like the spareness of a comic book drawing. And what Dan O'Bannon did is he showed how to make it more like an EC comic with all this crazy brain eating and exploitative stuff and, and just the, ex- the great exuberance yeah. of it. And without Return of the Living Dead, I don't think um, Joel Silver would have had a clue as to how to do um, the Crypt Keeper and all that stuff. That, that was the Dan, Dan O'Bannon, yeah. I think, set down the, the tone for that. Because of that movie, people, you know, t- still today th- associate uh, zombies with eating brains. And that's, I mean, they never were brain eaters okay. until that movie. Yeah. And so when I, um, when I asked the company that, that had the rights and, and, and I had signed the deal with, I asked them what they required of, um, for the movie. I said, does it have to be a direct sequel? Do you have to have certain characters in it? Does it have to have certain actors in it? What do you, what do you need? I said, does it have to be funny? Because Return to Living Dead was funny. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And they said, no, it doesn't have to be funny. It doesn't have to be have any actors or any characters. The only thing we require is that it has the trioxin gas. So the, the, the dead have to come back because of the gas. And secondly, that has to have brain eating. <laughs> so I didn't know how to do brain eating because I had a different, I, I, I wasn't, I was going in a non-comic mm-hmm. direction. I don't know why. I think it's because I also wanted it to be a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. And Night of the Living Dead isn't funny at all. Right. It's not even ironic. It mm-hmm. doesn't even, except at the end when the share, you know, when they're shooting them down, the rednecks. Yeah. That I think that, you know, there's some satire there. But in general, it's not, it's not at all. Whereas mm-hmm. Dan O'Bannon's is strictly a romp. Um, although it has very, very um, kind of I, serious kind of horror stuff. Yeah, well. I always think for comedy horror to work, I think the, both the comedy and the, I think the horror has to work uh, for it to be a good co- comedy horror film. Yeah, and so when they, when I got the chance to do this, I thought about what I would like, how, because at that time, this is like 1990 or something, 19, I thought, wow, there's just been too many zombie movies everything's been done yeah <laughs> which yeah. is ridiculous yeah. to, to think, think 90 or now or <laughs> 30 years later uh-huh. it's like it's still going um so i that's why i one reason why i i decided that i wanted a story that um had the main character as a living dead mm-hmm. and a part of that also was when i made bride of reanimator the bride doesn't kind of come to life until I guess the middle of the third act maybe and when I watched the movie I thought god she's the best character and I should have started brought her in earlier and so on this one I thought well I could just do a whole movie based on that character of someone who who's kind of um you know in that stressful kind of era of being sort of dead and alive at the same time yeah it's definitely the best of the return of living dead sequels and it uh totally works as a standalone movie yeah yeah i wouldn't have had yeah i think the the biggest weakness of that movie is that is the title interesting because because kind of like halloween three i guess well not even that no you can do halloween three or you could it's return of the living dead part three, <laughs> like return of the right. living dead is already, is, already like, yeah. uh-huh. it's all return of the living dead is kind of an alternate sequel to night of the living dead. So it's an alternate one because there was dawn of the dead and day of the dead that Romero did. Mm-hmm. But um, John Russo, the writer of night of the living dead, he ended up with the rights to the title Living Dead. That's why Romero just took out the living, just made it the dead. So he had the rights to the sequel, The Living Dead. Mm-hmm. And so Dan O'Bannon did Return of the Living Dead. Well, then when you have a, <laughs> there was a sequel to that. <laughs> and I was doing like the second sequel really? to the alternate sequel to a horror classic. <laughs> so it was like, but how do you put a, a subtitle? 
Return of the Living Dead 3. <laughs> give it a title. <laughs> the Return Again. It just starts being gobbledygook. Gobble. But I think if it hadn't been Return of the Living Dead, it, it just had a, a, a name. Like in Spain, they called it Mortal Zombie. Mm. And I thought, well, that's not bad, you know. Um, you know, or Reanimator in in um, in Japan is called Zombie Z O M B I. Oh, really? You know, yeah. They changed in different in when you license your movie, they can change, or they used to always be able to change the title to whatever they want. Mm -hmm. um, I I don't know. You know, now everything's different because of um, digital, and it's much easier to hang on to. You know, to, you know, you can insist more that they don't mess around with your movie, although you can't stop them from censorship cuts. Mm -hmm. uh, Tristan, you have a question? Yeah, I'm wondering about the extent of medical research required for Reanimator. Um, Stuart did a lot. Stuart's brother, um, I think he's a doctor or I think he's a doctor and he was a, a, a um, script consultant and I know Stuart always would take his his collaborators and do kind of field you know do um, field trips so I know that they went to a morgue and um, and they and he did he did research um, from with his brother at least, and I think that that really showed because the characters in it. I think one thing that really marks Reanimator stands gives it makes it stand out is that um, is that the the medical students West and Kane act like medical students. And the reason I think that is because all all the doctors and medical students that I've ever talked to, they like the movie. And I think they like it because it, they can relate to the motivations. Um, the other thing that's kind of remarkable about it is that um, is how what a good um, adaptation it is of the Lovecraft stories. The stories are not, um, there's six stories that were published, serialized, and um, not at all Lovecraftian. Like they really, if you talk about Lovecraft stories, you would never think that a, a story like Reanimator would be Lovecraft because it has none of, none, it's just such a traditional, you know, monkey's paw or not even monkey's paw because it's it's theoretically scientific, you know. Um, it's it's not Lovecraftian in that way, and it's a real old-fashioned kind of you know things crawling out of the grave kind of movie. But there is a real you know the way Lovecraft you know kind of tells the story of West's work. Um, that's really, I think Dennis Paoli and Bill Norris and Stuart Gordon, the writers, I think they really distilled it down into the story just really, really well, you know, with the things like the, you know, the 
you know, that consciousness exists in every part of the body, you know, or life, you know, the, you know, what it takes to, to bring something back. And, and there's a lot of, you know, I just read, I just read the stories again, just like the last few months. And I am always struck by that, you know, by the, um, by, you know, how that, how those, how they simplified it and really brought it out clearly in the, in the movie. You said you hadn't read the stories when you got involved until you got involved in the reanimator of the movie. Uh, had you read any um, Lovecraft at that time or was he new to you? I, I had, I had read Lovecraft. Just, I mean, I was, a, I read horror stuff as I grew up from the time I was in grammar school. In grammar school, I most, I, I think um, I read all the, all the original um, um, Grimm's brothers and, you know, all the, all the fairy tales, which I think are pretty horrific. They're genre for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and then I would read any kind of ghost stories or weird stories, or, you know. Um, it, it, so I was, um, you know, and as I got into high school, then I, of course I read H.G. Wells and, and I read Jules Verne and I read like Bram, Bram Stoker and um and mary shelley's frankenstein and the thing that struck me i liked hg wells you know um and mary shelley it was i couldn't it would just seem terrible you know it was to read frankenstein it was just like what is it this is not at all like the movie you know? uh -huh. and um and bram stoker was great i mean it worked for me especially the first part of it the um the jonathan harker's journal the first part takes place in transylvania i mean that's uh, to me i thought that was really good kind of horror stuff um i tried reading lovecraft in college because i had heard of him he's got a great name there was a rock and roll band in the 70s called lovecraft um, but he, um, I remember reading them and it was kind of like whenever something really good was going to happen, you know, the, the main character would fall into a faint. <laughs> it would be like, yeah. there was, it always just felt like it was leading up and talking around it and it never showed the vampire or, you know, <laughs> can do the thing. And so that kind of put me off of it. And, but when I, when, and if you'll remember, Lovecraft was not considered something that you could sell in the movies. When Corman made a Lovecraft movie, I think it was uh, Charles Dexter Ward, I think was the story that he made as Edgar Allan Poe's And then he put the Poe name on it, right, right, exactly. No, no, he called it the Haunted Castle because he, because Lovecraft, he was selling Poe. And Haunted Castle was just a poem of Poe's, and he used the Lovecraft story, but gave it a Poe name yep. and made it seem like a Poe thing. So that was just, uh, you know, when I read the script of Reanimator and I loved it, the, you know, the TV one and wanted to develop it. And, and we went full, I mean, within, it was like exactly one year from the time I met Stuart in Chicago 
and then one year later, we were starting pre-production. So within that year, we, and I moved to LA during that time with my wife and kids. Um, we um, developed the whole thing and, and got the movie going. Um, but of course, I immediately started reading Lovecraft. You know, I read those stories and then I got interested. And once we started shooting it, you know, um, when you shoot a movie, you always talk about the sequel. <laughs> I don't know why. It's just something you do. Yeah. But neither of us felt like we felt like the sequel would be another movie. And the one that we were going to, first of all, I, I immediately hired Dennis to write um, Shadow Over Innsmouth, which I called Dagon, because I didn't like the title Shadow Over Innsmouth. And we were going to do it with the same actors because Stewart's like that, you know, he's a theater guy. So you have the theater troupe. And, um, but instead nobody ever, but now I wasn't going to pay for the movie. I, I was over that it's too, too <laughs> stressful, better to get money from people in the movies. I wouldn't even, I borrowed money for reanimator and it, it's, for me, it was just terrible to take to have to deal with people who didn't have any concept of what the movie business was like and had totally um, unrealistic expectations, probably. And so I could never be somebody who goes around and gets a bunch of dentists and doctors, to, you know, people from outside the business to put money into a movie because I'd say, man, you're going to lose your money. You know, mm -hmm. it's better. But I have no problems doing it with a company that's selling movies they're already in the business they're they're going to look after themselves mm -hmm. you know? um, but anyway i um so we did make a um a deal with empire pictures to finance three movies and because i've given them reanimator to distribute and um and we picked a lovecraft at that time i looked found, went through all the, you know, a ton of Lovecraft stories and kind of came down to dreams in the witch house or from beyond. And we decided both of which I thought would be a good basis for a movie. And from beyond is a very short story, but what was interesting about it was that it had this machine that changed things, you know, and that's, um, that, so we decided that would be the sequel. Um, in the same way as I remember when they made a sequel to Psycho, when they made Psycho 2, naively, I was kind of shocked that it had Norman Bates in it. Because I thought, Norman Bates' story, story has already yeah. been told, let's do another Psycho story, uh -huh. you know? So that was, or went with House of Usher, when Corman made hitting the pendulum, he didn't carry those characters on. He, but it was like a sequel, you know, mm -hmm. House of Usher, Pitting the Pendulum, Mask of the Red Death, Premature Burial, Tales of Terror. They were all in the same mode, but they weren't direct sequels. But now, but then of course, once I started getting aware of the movie business, I realized that sequels are really more a celebration of the first movie than they are something i mean you can make them really good but 
but really people do want to see the characters again and everything, which I, I guess probably with Return of the Living Dead 3, maybe <laughs> it was a mistake not to, you know, yeah. carry it on directly. Mm-hmm. But the, um, so the, the From Beyond was the one that we developed into a, into a sequel. But even then we talked about making, we always talked about making brighter the animator. Like when we were shooting from beyond, we were in Italy, we went, we shot it in Rome also with dolls. So we went, Stuart and I went to Rome with the effects guys and we, um, and we shot over the winter there, the both movies. And on our, our we'd, we'd be driven back, we'd talk about, um, about Bride of Reanimated, you know. <laughs> and it was, the, it was the time of Ronald Reagan, and he had been shot, and kind of was never right after that. And it's kind of had Alzheimer's or something. And so we just thought it'd be funny if the president was dead. He had been reanimated by <laughs> Herbert West, you know. So we had this whole thing that we talk about as uh-huh. a regular sequel. Of course, when I finally did Bride of Reanimator, it had nothing to do with that. I went in a totally different direction. Interesting. How did it come about that uh, that you directed the sequel? Was it ever going to be a Stewart again? You know, it's funny. Stewart had some pretty big representation, um, you know, agents, and. Um, because he had like a 10-year career as a, as a, he had only, Reanimator was his first movie, but he'd been directing theater for 10 years. You know, he, he had a, a real body of work. Um, and, so, and he, he dealt with pretty big actors and, and he had connections through his friends. Um, so we were, at that time, we were, um, you know, we were going in and pitching stuff. And while we were making From Beyond, we got the deal to, to we sold the deal to make um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you know. So things were moving up for us, you know. And um, at one point I talked, you know, I was talking about doing the sequel and, um, and he kind of indicated that his agent didn't think he should do sequels, you know. Um, at that point. Mm-hmm. And also I got to the point, also I had to bail. We, I did two of the three movies I'd made the deal with Empire to do, Dolls and From Beyond. And then I was working with Stuart on robo jobs. And, um, but I had to sue Empire because they never paid the money for a reanimator. I was, you know, I saw my, my great, you know, I thought I was going to get rich, and instead, I was hiring lawyers to just try to pay back the investors. Um, and when that happened, then I kind of just quit work. The, I had to move off. Real of quick, working on I don't want to interrupt you, but Empire, Empire, that's that was Charles Band before he did go into Full Moon yeah. Madness. Yeah, he and his dad and his brother. Um, so of course, I couldn't really be dealing with them when they were, I was suing them. And so then I moved on to do other things. And I was actually working with, with Dan O'Bannon, um, 
for a long time developing a story called The Men that Dan was going to direct. And it was about a woman who discovers that all men are aliens. And I thought it was really a lot of fun. But of course, now I don't think you could make it to, you know, things aren't so binary now. Um, but it was a real paranoid kind of thriller with sort of a sci-fi satire to it. And, um, and as I was, then he bailed on it. What right when I got it financed? And so I just started feeling like I was losing projects because I, you know, I kind of wanted to be the one-stop guy. So I thought, well, I'll just direct it. And a big part of it is when you work on a movie set, when you're on a set, I think almost everybody goes, I could direct, you know, I could do that, you know, I want to try that, you know. And so that that's a pretty natural thing. So I thought, well, I'm going to give it a shot. And I um, and I found a um, instead of doing the sequel to Reanimator with like a big company or something, I had a friend who had started up a uh, small production, very low budget productions and a sales company. And I liked what they were doing. And I said, well, listen, I'll, I'll let you guys finance um, Bride of Reanimator. They were getting all their money from Japan. The one partner, Paul White, who I still work with, um, was living in Japan. And so at that time in the 80s, Japan had oodles of money. And so then um, they were they were backing this company called Wild Street. And so I said, we'll, you know, I'll let you do Bride of Reanimator with me producing and directing and, and, and deciding what it's going to be like. Um, but it has, it has to be a two picture deal. And Bride has to be the second picture. I need a, and the reason I did that is because, you know, there's this saying that first time directors usually make two movies in one with their debut film, their first and their last. And um, the reason is because you, it, it's, it's one thing to sell promise, but when mm. it's finally time to watch the movie, usually it's a failure. And, um, and so that I, so I thought, well, I've never had a, film class, I've had no, you know, I mean, I was in my 30s before I came out to LA to make movies. I never didn't, you know, I didn't grow up going, I got to make movies. And um, so it was, uh, I thought that would give me a chance if I made, it would make sure I had two chances in case I failed completely the first time, maybe I could learn some lessons and, and have another chance. So uh, it was, you know, then you start directing and you kind of like it, especially if you're producing too, you know, if you can really have control, um, be able to decide how to, how to allocate resources, and, you know, and hopefully the movies can come out well. So what was the experience like uh, directing the sequel? Oh, the sequel? Yeah. It was great. I mean, I had like three, four units going at once because I was, 
I was signing the checks. They just sent me the money. I put it in the bank. And, um, and I, I mean, we wrote the script in, I think it was like two and a half months from the time we started until we started pre-production because I had a hard date to have to start production, I guess, for tax reasons, for the Japanese investors. I don't know. But it was, um, it was great. It was, um, I still, I mean, it was really kind of a daunting thing to do because, you know, Reanimator is so good and the fans are going to expect a certain type of movie. It's not like Mm -hmm. the first movie I did with Society. Well, nobody knew what that should be. I could do anything I wanted because it's not trying to match anything, right? It's not a genre. It's who knows what it is. (laughs) And it was basically the men but with the class system and the class Interesting. system yeah. instead but with that same paranoia that there's this big secret thing going on that do you, think, you don't know about do you think society's gotten more popular lately it seems like i think more people talk about it uh in the last few years absolutely absolutely it started like about 10 years ago and before that it it always had it always did well in in um in britain Mm-hmm. It, it, but it was it also um, the British distributor also took the North American rights and so they didn't release it in North America for a few years after it had been finished um, I think that um, and it did it did pretty well like in France and Spain and especially in Italy so there were some places that it did okay well, well this was way back before any internet or anything. So you just didn't even know about that stuff. You know, it wasn't like, you know, with reanimator, we didn't even have a fax machine, you know, you know, we did our, we made the budgets in pencil on forms, you know? Um, so now of course you know, what's how you're being responded to around the world, it's festival, you know, horror festival. It wasn't like that then they could tell you it was doing good in Britain. What do you know? You know, it was, I knew that I knew it had been accepted there, but I never quite understood. Um, all I knew was that the review and variety was just awful. <laughs> and, and that, um, and that it just, I thought it was, I thought everybody was going to love it. You know, I thought, wow, this is going to be number one on the charts, you know, the box office. And even my friends were kind of, you know, <laughs> they didn't like it, you know. Yeah. I'm a big and fan. So yeah. I was very I was very surprised, but I also know that it wasn't. You know, it's kind of it was a lot of it was very clumsy um, because of my lack of experience in directing. Um, the tone was very weird, um, and so it never, you know, it kind of was disappointing. But I was on doing other things. And then in the in around the year 2000, I, I was able to buy the movie from the um, from the people that owned it because they had sold all the territories. They said, "Hey, maybe you'd like to own it, pay this." And, and at that time, I had enough money to to do that, and so I actually bought the film, and then I started trying to put it out. I think Blu-ray was just starting, or no, DVD, this is 
first yeah, DVD. Just, right. And but then, man, just it it was like around you know the about ten years ago. All of a sudden, it got this whole new audience, and it kind of became discovered, you know. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of it was because the '80s became a big thing, and there's this interest in the '80s and this pre-digital and very independent time of making films. Because in the '80s, the first ten years of video, man, it was there were so many companies. You know, it was really kind of wide open. And then in the 90s, they all started consolidating. And instead of there being mom and pop video stores, it was all blockbuster. blockbuster. Yeah. And they just, they just milked you for every dime. You know, they, you know, they had all kinds of rules to make sure that you had to pay more. And, and they um, also started determining how the, you know, what the movies were going to be like. They would even read scripts because wow. the companies that were making movies like Return of the Living Dead, um, Trimark, well, they, what that they were focused on wasn't making a big box office smash because you couldn't afford you couldn't afford the advertising it take to do a lot in the in the theaters, but they knew when it went to video, there's guaranteed money there and they in, in all the conversations were about how much shelf space you get at blockbuster and block if you got blockbuster on board before you make it then you'd have because it just when you go to the store it's like if you go to the supermarket and you're going to buy i don't know a can of beans or something there's tons of people putting out beans but you'll find that your supermarket um will have their own brand. Right. It's like if you go to Costco, um, you're going to get Kirkland, you know, because, or Trader Joe's, they buy up stuff and they put their own label on it. And then they, if you go to Trader Joe's, you're going to, there's basically going to be 50% of everything. There's Trader Joe's brand. You're not going to, you know, you, right. if you can't, you could invent the best candy bar in the world, but if you can't get it at the checkout counter, you're not going to sell it. And so that was the idea with Blockbuster. It's no longer where there are all these independent video stores that would just grab up stuff they liked. It would be Blockbuster deciding what the movie should be like. And that's a, um, and so that was um, all that consolidation took it to there. And then with the, with the video business, I mean, with the digital coming in and everybody started doing everything digitally. So you have a whole certain way that movies are made digitally. That's not the way they're made on film. On film, it takes a lot more light and it's a bigger deal to move the camera. And it's a, um, and you, and it's a, uh, you really set up every shot. Whereas with digital, you can just run around and shoot, 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 and then do it in the editing. And, um, and the editing is quick, 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 you know, um, it's, uh, and so it's a different feel though, you know, the, the, you don't get that sense of, of much more specific, you know, consciousness, except from certain filmmakers. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, and then with digital, then they start doing all the effects digitally 
which obviously on something like Jurassic Park, it really works. It really, you know, kind of, it works in, on, on the real high end. But mm -hmm. when you look at something like, like um, the mummy that they made in was the late nineties with Arnold Vosloh. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you see the mummy, he had this gory kind of face, um, kind of de desiccated and stuff, but it, it was really PG. Whereas if it had been a makeup effect, if you'd gotten Rick Baker to do it, and you mm -hmm. had a skull and a, and you know, rubber hanging over and a puppet, it would have been, you know, maybe R-rated, you know. And mm -hmm. there's something about that that um, you know, the digital is is really animation. So it's a very sophisticated 3D animation, but it's it's animation, and it doesn't affect you the same way. So I think that's a problem that you know. And then on the low budget, the 3D, the digital effects are awful, you know, because they can't afford, they, you can't afford what it takes to do really good 3D effects. And then you start having cheap movies where everybody can do the effects on their computer and now oh, we'll do this, we'll do that. And they even start, they do everything um, with, with CGI. They'll do smoke. They'll do sparks. They'll do. They'll do. They'll do blood splatters on the, the blood wall. Blood Instead splatter of throwing and blood fire, on the really. wall, yeah, they really just. Bad. They just, and they think that they're that this is really smart, you know. But all it indicates to me is that the people making the movie aren't really into horror, because if they were, they'd know that doesn't that that's not satisfying. It, you know, I'm not I honestly think that's one of the worst TV. parts about uh, the Walking Dead TV show is the is the digital blood splatter. Oh yeah, is that what they do? Mm -hmm. So I think people started looking back at the VHS era. <laughs> yeah, and they saw how quirky it was, and how in some ways there's some things about it that were better, mm -hmm. and not. I mean, when you look at the old stuff. Sometimes you're amazed that people would accept the stories, you know, the, right. the clumsy, stupid storytelling on some, you know, yeah. you watch well, the old. I have the a theory about the, movies. I think even bad, like practical effects has like a, uh, there's something fun about it where bad CGI is just bad and it's not even like uh, enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, I it has like a charm to it. I think if it's yeah, there's even something some of about puppets that work. Mm -hmm. Puppets are, puppets always work. You know, I can, I've seen, I've only done one CG creature ever. And, um, and I saw, and I had built the real thing. It was a 40 foot sea scorpion. And we built the whole thing. It took 12 people with hydraulics to have it do this. You know, it was huge. And I built a puppet to move it. But sometimes you've got to have, the CG. And I tried to mix it up, putting CG eyes on the puppet and things that you can't do well with puppets. Um, but then 
at one point I had to build the whole thing CG. And this was done in Brussels, but with a company there. And we were a low budget. And I saw the process of how you had to build, build a, a, a creature. This is a monster. Um, and when I saw that process and saw the way that they budgeted time and money, then all of a sudden I understood completely why CG monsters jump around and do, you know, the, there's, they're so un, unreal, you know, there's no sense of weight. And the reason is, is because they can only afford so much. And so, and the shots are like one and a half seconds, two seconds. And they'll say, well, listen, you're paying for it anyway. We can have it do this. <laughs> but if you were a puppet, it would do this, mm -hmm. you know? And so you see this kind of, it's cartoony, I think. It's just not, it's not, um, and you have one person comes in and does the armature. They do an animatic. They have somebody come in and put the skin on it. They have somebody else come in and put the lights in. They have someone else put the texture on the skin. Somebody else does the wetness and it's layer after layer and you can't change it. Once you approve that animatic, it's just a process of putting skins and stuff. Whereas if you have a puppet, you can keep shooting and throw some smoke in there, have it do this until you get something that works. Mm -hmm. And I've seen, you know, a lot of the effects guys I know, like say Screaming Mad George, he can put his hand in a sock. And it'll come to life. He'll make a creature right in front of you, just like a magician doing a trick. And people, puppets are disturbing and they work. You're really acting. Whereas with CG, it's, it's animation. It's hard, hard, hard to do Pixar, you know. Right. It's, but and I think even acting, as a, just as an audience member, even if you can't like, uh, say that like uh, this doesn't work for me for these reasons i think your mind knows it doesn't quite work well you yeah because most people don't care all they know is whether they enjoyed <laughs> i like yeah I, I mean you go to the movies uh, i mean i guess everybody's kind of interested in the movies now but generally you either like it or you don't and you like it sometimes just because of the person you went with <laughs> that's very <laughs> or, true or there's yeah. something it was shot in your state or your there's lots of reasons why you might like a movie but if you're interested in movies a little more than that especially if you make them um you tend to try to break it down you tend to try to deconstruct it to understand why you like it and i remember i used to take my kids to the movies and when we'd come out i'd say well what do you give it you know <laughs> From one to ten, what do you give? Uh, and then they would give it whatever they give it, and I say, "Well, why?" And then I would tell them what I thought, and then they would go, "You never like anything." <laughs> and I'd say, "No, I don't think I, I'm just telling you what I think is good and bad about it, and why I responded the way I did, which is not necessarily true, but it's what I think. But I think I enjoyed it way more than you did." You go to an art gallery and you just watch, look at a painting, say, I like that. I don't like that. Well, you probably aren't, and um, the experience is probably a lot poorer than it is for someone who knows what era it's from, who the painter was, what kind of style it was, 
what it signifies. That depth of knowledge, you know, gives you a critical eye. And then when you see something that, that you like, you like it a, in a much richer way. So that's one reason to deconstruct movies. But another, but it's very difficult to deconstruct movies if you don't know how they're made because you don't know what you're watching. Uh, a friend of mine, who's actually the writer, John Penny, the writer of Return to Living Dead 3, after that movie, we became friends. And he's a big winemaker up in, up in Carmel Valley. They make wine. Mm -hmm. And he know, and I've learned from him the process. But when you taste wine, it's very difficult to go, you go, I like it. I don't like, you don't know what you're tasting. And you need someone to kind of talk you through it. But until you, unless you know how the wine is made, how it changes and what you can do to change it, well, you don't really know what you're tasting. And the same thing goes with a movie. It's very difficult to tell what, to separate the directing from the acting, from the script. Sometimes the casting can change a movie. And if you don't know the way a movie, a script is written, the way a production is mounted, what money needs out of the movie and what kind of requirements they may put into it. It's, if you don't know that process, it's very difficult to, to kind of know why the movie works for you or doesn't. You can always, you try, you, you give an opinion, but I'm sure we've all been in heated arguments with people who are very sure about, <laughs> about movies. And sometimes none of us really knows what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Along those lines, what, what do you think of film critics? Um, well, I think they're good. I think it's good. Everybody's a film critic. Sure. And especially now yeah, right. when you have Rotten Tomatoes. Right. I, I really appreciate um, film critics um, because I, I think, I think they, there's, they go in two directions. One is that, is that they have some theory that they have a higher, higher appreciation of film, um, which often is the case because they see so much film and they have to write so much. And so they tend to sometimes overvalue things that maybe we wouldn't even want to watch. So the extreme of that would be what's that guy's name, Brody at the New Yorker magazine. Mm, sure. yeah. This stuff is very, and then at the far other end, you have the critics who are just trying to make sure that they're agree with the public. <laughs> they don't want to be wrong because mm -hmm. in this country, you know, in the U.S., we think the public is right. In Europe, they feel like the public needs to be educated. You know, in art, we think that people who aren't, if it's a box office smash, it must be good. You know, uh -huh. so there's, they go in both directions, but I find that I really like reading reviews that, um, that I kind of agree with or that agree with me um, because I like the reviews that put into words what I kind of think, you know, I kind of have, I kind of feel and say some, some feeling towards the movie and I'm pretty, and I'm very, 
opinionated. I'm not, mm -hmm. ne I'm not ever very mushy. I'll go, I'll <laughs> argue very strongly. Uh -huh. um, but I look for um, I look for a critic that puts into words the feeling I have. So, for example, one of the movies I watched recently was Tenet. And I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen it yet, actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it just seems like a real, not a very good movie. <laughs> okay. Um, and, um, but it's so, it's got a huge budget. Mm -hmm. And so there's all this stuff going on. And of course, most of the critics give it a good review because it's a huge movie and it's Christopher Nolan. And, and that's what's, you know, it's brilliant. You know, I mean, it's not, I don't think, but, <laughs> uh -huh. but the, um, and it's just not very entertaining, you know, um, but so, but you look at it and you go, my God, what, how do you put it into words? You know, what do you, how do you, um, you know, I want to find the critics that put into words what I felt when I was watching it. So I love critics for that. And it helps me then talk about it because I find someone who has, who who has put into words some reaction I've had, and um, and then I can, you know, then it gives me a way to kind of encapsulate yeah. my feelings. Well, so, yeah, I do yeah, like critics. Yeah, I'd say obviously not Tenet, but do you have any uh, current movies that uh, you do recommend? I don't know. I mean, I watch a lot of old stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not real big on like binging cable series like everybody else I know. <laughs> um, I know I'm really looking forward to seeing the new Pixar movie, um, The Soul. Mm -hmm. I've heard nothing but good things. That might about be it. really good. Soul was great. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, I really liked the previous one, the um, Coco. Yeah, Coco uh, was super was good. You know, sometimes they really do a good job. I don't know. You know, they tell a real story. You know, yeah. you don't see that much. Everything seems to be very, you know, well, derivative because everything is derivative, I guess. Yeah, I want to ask a couple things about uh, the dentist because uh, I watch it, you know, for the show. And I always liked it. And it's the first time I'd watched it again for a long time. That's probably since it was on when I rented it. But, um, I find it pretty scary because it's kind of like everyone goes to the doctor, the dentist, and it's like it kind of comes down to what what if your dentist who you're put you're the doctor, whoever, that you're putting you like your faith into, what if he had a bad day? And this that's what the exactly. movie is well, only that, like the, to the nth that degree. Is, that is the whole point of it. <laughs> the whole point is exactly that. It's like what if your dentist had a bad day? You know, <laughs> like you don't want to have that um that drunk, hot, suicidal air pilot, you know, when you're <laughs> taking off. And I think that that was the, the kind of the brilliance of the, um, of the concept, which was created by Dennis Paoli and Stuart Gordon. So they wrote the original story. And then um, they wrote a script and then a, Charles Finch wrote another draft of the script, but it was all based on that basic idea that the dentist gets up and he, he's a very fastidious guy and he discovers that his wife is being unfaithful. And in the original story, he actually kills her. 
then he goes to work and the whole thing takes place over four hours and the final version takes place over a couple of days and he only imagines killing her but he's going cuckoo yeah. along the way you know but it definitely and the it's funny because i got the i got the job to make the dentist i was going to produce and direct it and develop it from the head of the company that i did return to living dead three for so it was a company called trimark and the head of it was mark amin and he i remember after i finished um return to living dead three we had lunch and he had already he he had already made a poster for the dentist you know mm -hmm. uh, which was just a drill in a in a chair with somebody <laughs> yeah. and and he um and he his requirement just like with return to living dead 3 it just just had to have the trioxin and the brain eating his requirement is it could not it had to be focused on the dentist chair it had to be about the experience of going to the dentist and it had to be realistic it couldn't have like supernatural aliens mm -hmm. anything like that which is i thought would be much easier because i usually like to do weird yeah. stuff and so it was much more difficult to find someone a writer to come up with a story we went through i think i think i I read 20 or 30 um, pitches, you know, and met with people and they just never, I couldn't figure it out. And then um, Stuart and Dennis had gone to see um, Trimark to do a project with them. And they had this idea of the dentist coincidentally. And so there, the idea was, it just was great. You know, yeah. it's like you get that you totally get it and you're just going from from person you know, you're just watching people in the waiting room <laughs> yeah. and it and once again just like and with and i and, and once again with stewart i went with stewart and we visited dental offices and we talked to the technicians and we talked to the dentists to see what how it worked you know, and to get all the pattern and everything true. And so I think that, sh that I think, comes off. That, that's reflected. Just like with um, Beyond Reanimator, the second sequel to Reanimator, which I made in Spain, by the way, um, it was a prison movie. And the writer, Miguel Tejada Flores, in Oregon, when we were developing the story, I wanted Wes to be able to have a whole, to have a lab. I didn't know what a prison, what could you do in a prison really, right? Because in the movies, you just see them like doing the laundry. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? The yeah. typical, you know, the typical kind of prison movie. And so we went and visited three prisons in Oregon. I think one was in Washington State a minimum security, a medium security, and a maximum security. Now, Wes was gonna be in maximum security, and we went to the maximum security prison in Salem, Oregon. And um, it was like a city. And when you saw, you know, when I saw the 
work areas that the prisoners could be. They can run their own businesses out of there. So they had every kind of tool you could imagine. And I thought, well, and they have a whole kind of hospital there. So I thought, well, you know, that you sort of see how the, how it, you know, how they move, you know, when they ring the bell, how you get in, you know, with weapons checks and bars going past you and you get in and how they make the prisoners walk the line, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, it was like a real eye opener, you know, all of a sudden you see the classrooms, the library, and you realize, well, well, you could tell any number of stories in a prison and, um, and people come in from outside. And so it made me think that, well, then we, it's no problem having them kind of create the serum there <laughs> and all of that, you know, so it's the same thing with the dentist. I think by, by visiting the um, dentist's office, we were able to develop the script so that it, so that they, we had the right, we had the right cast of characters in a dentist's office doing what they did. And also hearing, you know, talking privately with the, with the hygienist and, you know, the people who work for the dentist mm -hmm. and you realize they're, you know, they don't always love the guy they're working for. <laughs> right. And um, they think they're, could be pretty crazy. And the, and different dentist offices look different. Mm -hmm. I mean, every, you know, one would have, it would be almost like a, you know, a wood paneled study with a, with a bar with exotic liquors, you know, and another would just have a bare bones kind of almost like an accountant's desk. So it's, a dentist can go in any different direction. Uh -huh. So it, I think that the, I think that the version that we did was pretty true. I think, yeah. I think Corbin was a very, Oh yeah. He really embraces, dentist, he really you know? embraces the role too. He's, he's great in, the yeah. movie, in both movies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, it's probably just a thing for me, but I always feel uneasy around people that are like super like overly calm or, uh, and so uh, right away, he oh, you hate you hate to touches. see that needle coming towards you. You know, it's funny. I I had in uh, nineteen ninety eight, I moved to Spain to Barcelona to do a series of movies there called the Fantastic Factory, and um, we lived right in the middle of Barcelona. And eventually, I had to get a dentist in Barcelona. And I, and the first time I went to see him, I went up and, um, and got in the chair, you know, and I had the bib and the whole thing. And he got the, you know, the needle's always real long because they have to get it deep into your yeah. mouth. And he had the needle and as he turned, and of course they always squirt a little, he turned and said, you know, with I watched your movie, The Dentist, last night. <laughs> and honestly, my heart just sang. I went, oh, my God, this guy's going to do this stuff. It's a weird thing to tell you right before he, uh, right before he checks you, too. Uh, Tristan, do you have a question? I'm actually just wondering what you used for the uh, reanimating solution. 
oh, that's just luminol. That's what you get in the glow sticks. We just mm-hmm. cut up a bunch of sticks and poured it into a jar. Well, it's t- there's two sides of it, of course. When you do a glow stick, you break it, which there's two chemicals and there's a little membrane. And when you break that membrane, they mix and then it glows for a certain amount of time. And what we did, it was actually Anthony Dublin, the effects guy who came up with that. And he, he just poured it all. He, we had the two solutions. He, you know, he bought a bunch of sticks or something, or I don't know if maybe he get, you can get a jar of it. I don't think so. But he had one jar of one and one of the other. And then he would mix it up right before we, would, we shot. And we, the DP had done a um, test on how bright it was and how quickly it lost its power, right? Because you'd have to adjust the, your aperture if it's starting to get dimmer. So there's a, you know, I forget how long it, you could shoot with it, you know, but you'd, we're all, you're always having to redo the syringe or, you know, sometimes it didn't matter much, you know, usually stuff like that, it matters the first time you see it a lot. And maybe on some key points. And after that, it can just kind of be green. It doesn't have to, you know, look like a Christmas tree light. But at first, you kind of want it to be look a little magic. But everything's like that in the movies. It's like the first time you see something, it's got to be you know, it's got to be much better than it has to be later on. I saw an interview with you and Stuart Gordon where uh, he talked about he originally wanted to shoot the movie in black and white. And I thought uh, <laughs> you wouldn't have had the you wouldn't have had the, the green at all. If well, we... it's, at that time, we didn't know what the movie was going to be right. like. And so when you're if you're doing a sequel, you pretty much have these this box you've got to kind of fit yourself in. But when you're doing an original movie, who knows, you don't know what it's gonna, you know, what kind of movie it's gonna be. At that time, Stuart, I had gone to meet Stuart in Chicago at his theater that he was the artistic director of. And at first the idea was, we'll just shoot it there. And, um, and Stuart just thought we should shoot it like on 16 and black and white so that it would be really disturbing. You wouldn't know what, you know, you know, if this was going to be one of those movies that they really went too far on, you know, really disturbing. Mm-hmm. But um, I, as I always thought, I remember when Driller Killer came out and I'd seen the trailer and I was imagined a movie that was much worse than it ever was. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and then you watch the movie and you realize, no, actually that sizzle, really made you think something else, you know? I mean, same with Texas Chainsaw. I think you hear the title and you go, my God, this is going to be the most gruesome, brutal. And you go, no, actually, it's kind of like an art movie. Mm-hmm. It's just really good and yeah. really disturbing, but it's not at all what you would get from the, from the title. You know? mm-hmm. I think that, um, that, that, that the idea, a reanimator shot with minimal sets like locations and black and white, uh, it could have been really, really powerful, you know? Um, you know, 
kind of like Henry Portrait of Serial Killer, but more entertaining. But that wasn't what I wanted to do. I, I had moved to Hollywood, you know, and I wanted to make, you know, a Hollywood movie. Yeah. I wasn't, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to do indie stuff. I mean, it wasn't indie, but you know right. what I mean. I yeah. wanted to, I wanted a movie that looked like the movies I liked when I was growing up, you know, yeah. and it was a real movie. And in, in fact, I even paid to have a, an orchestra do the score because I didn't want, I wanted it to be like, like a real movie that looked like it. And it did. It did. I mean, a low budget one, but it's absolutely like a, a Hollywood movie. So mm -hmm. from that point of view, it, it satisfied me. Yeah. Uh, I'll ask a few questions here from the chat, if you don't mind. Uh, trash Arts in Portsmouth uh, in England, uh, they say uh, society gets stronger every time I watch it, a risky film that sadly can constantly stays relevant, saying something about capitalism and class more than most films can. Not really a question, but a comment. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um. There's uh, some here on Facebook. Uh, oh, he also wanted to know, uh, would you ever want to revisit society? Well, I'm trying to develop it into a limited cable series. Oh, really? <laughs> of course. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't direct it, but I would certainly mm -hmm. develop it. You know, I think, it'd, I think it'd make a good series because it's more a world that you're in. Uh, the characters... It wouldn't make, there'd be no reason to carry on the characters mm -hmm. because that wasn't really what it was about. When you have Reanimator, you really want Herbert West. You want that character. But with um, society, um, it's really just the, the star of the show is kind of the world, that weird, satirical, shunting world. Uh -huh. Of, um, of class being even more um, separating than, than species. You know, it's like you're much more separated people from others by your class than you are by your race or your ethnicity or anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, when you were uh, in the script for society, like, is it like, do you go into specifics at the end with everything's going crazy? Like, uh, do you write out like there's a guy with like a butt face and all these things? <laughs> well, yes, in the sense that um, that the um, script, when you're going to shoot every day, the script pages should reflect what you're going to shoot. But the original script of Society didn't have any shunting or any of that weird stuff. It was more of a um, of a um, more of a blood sacrifice type thing but it always had the satire mm -hmm. um as a matter of fact i just watched a trailer by the one of the writers of society woody um well he, he was called woody keith when when he made society now he's um zeph daniel and um and he has a movie that he just produced and wrote called girl next and watching the trailer, it you could really see a lot of the a little bit of society in the psychology of it, 
and it was straight ahead. It's straight ahead kind of horror, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I but I kind of but the script of society was already really funny to me. It, it was just it was so paranoid, and there was such kind of weird characters in it. Um, and the only thing, it was my first movie directing, and I just wanted to have effects. I yeah. wanted to have some effects that I hadn't seen yet. And um, so I imagined skin melding together. And then we started talking about how that could become, how that could be part of the story. And we came up with the shunting. And we did it also in conjunction with Screaming Mad George, the, the effects artist, because he did this type of, of surrealistic sculptures and stuff. So it was, it was a, um, you know, altogether it, it went, you know, it was me wanting it to be something fantastical. And I also tried to, tried to, with the rewrites, tried to bring out more the, um, the um, class issues and the and the um, the incest part of it, and um, the the idea of making class be a a um, almost a sci-fi notion um, basically was was um, left over from working those months on the men. Where in the men, they, the men were aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this, I didn't want them to be that. I want them to be kind of like a parasitic life force, you know, a true blue bloods, you know. And so I just created a whole mythology um, for to make it become something weird like the shunting. And the writers, ran with it. I mean, we should just meet and come up with stuff. And I'd look at what George was doing, I'd talk to him. And we incorporated lots of his stuff just into it and tried to just make it a, you know, just more like a, you know, just like a lot of fun, like a, a um, theme ride. And yet, and if we'd come up with something, then we'd put it into the script. And so, yes, the butthead was written into it. <laughs> uh-huh. All of it was written in. We yeah. had to build it. We have to right, 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 right. You yeah. can't just immediately yeah. say, oh, "Hey, you think you could get a butt head over here <laughs> on the bed?" Uh-huh. Oh yeah, I got one in the back. Uh, Eddie Double Seven says uh, he used to run a dentist website. Uh, he made. Uh, he says, "Hopefully, Brian remembers that." And he was I wondering did. how you got uh, Corbin Burnson uh, in the film. How he was cast? He was just on a list. Um, it's um, back in that time, there was kind of a formula for low budget. Dentist is super low budget. Mm-hmm. And um, there were, there was a formula for, <clears throat> for making a movie with these certain companies, these mid-level companies. It's like in, I, I produced Silent Night, Deadly Night Five, The Toy Maker, which I am actually a big fan. And that, of. and that had um, Mickey Rooney, right? You say mm-hmm. Mickey Rooney. Well, there be 
a certain list of actors and they would have X amount of money to put into an actor to put on the box, right? Mm-hmm. And so these actors, you just go down the list, you know? And so for Toymaker, Mickey Rooney came in and you're dealing, it's like, oh, now we have, <laughs> we're going to, you know, it's fun because, you know, that he's like, he was like the biggest guy in the world for a while. Yeah. And so then you get to make a movie with him where he plays uh, a um, evil Santa. Uh-huh. The the um, with Corbin, there was I, I know at one point I talked to the agent of Chevy Chase about the dentist. Um, it never went anywhere, but see that what a different movie that would be. Yeah. Or what if Bruce Campbell had been the dentist? Would have been totally. It, it would have been totally different. It'd be much more manic probably. But Corbin, when he was suggested, I looked at at some of it, you know, his product reel. And he'd never done anything horror at all. Mm-hmm. But he did play kind of like the bad father or something, or the angry husband, you know, he had that edge to him. And what I didn't know until we really, until we got into it, was what a, what a collaborator he was, so that he really, he really always had ideas about his scenes. And, you know, a lot of times they, we, you know, we used it. He had really good visual ways to, um, for a lot of the scenes, because we were real limited in what we were doing. But he, you know, he, he worked a lot. He knew what he was doing and um, really had made a, much more of a contribution than just as the guy hired to act. You know, he really, he really, um, you know, was part of a lot of the, a lot of the ideas of how to shoot his character. Uh, they also said in the chat that uh, they heard he wasn't easy to work with, but uh, you seem to enjoy. Um, he's a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, We've had our we've had our troubles on set. <laughs> it can happen with especially actors. You know, they they're way out there on the edge. You know, and he could be he could be difficult. <laughs> but you know, that can be good, I guess. Sometimes if they actually care about the role. So. I well, I think there's something very strange about being an actor. You know, it's a very strange thing to do, and. Um, when we have one. Playing a crazy guy like that, um, they kind of become crazy. But <laughs> we did the sequel too. We um, and he really, really went nuts there. I love, yeah. I love <laughs> what he did in the sequel. You know. Uh-huh. Uh Kermit wants to know what uh, Lovecraft story do you wish you could adapt that you have not? Well, there's a lot of them. You know, I I always liked the thing on the doorstep. I really love Dunwich Horror. Um, I like that it's a, kind of just a half a story. It would make only half a movie. You'd have to mix it with something. But I, I like the tomb about the World War One submarine that is, I think it's German. It's being kind of magnetically taken down to the bottom of the ocean. It's kind of cool. Um, there's just so many of them, you know, there's so many, um, 
there's so many Lovecraft stories that you could do something with, but certain ones have a little more to them. So with the with the thing on the doorstep, the thing that really is great about that story <clears throat> is that it has to do with body switching. And there's a there's a female lead in it. And in most of Lovecraft, there's no female character. So you're always having to add them in as kind of a love interest or something. And of course, I guess you could just change male to female, but but with with the thing on the doorstep, it's about a magician who's changing, you know, he wants, he's in the body of the woman and then he switches with, she, you know, I think she marries him and then she'll tie him up and switch and, and ultimately wants to have a male body because the magician would be more powerful. Of course, that's probably not working today, <laughs> but that whole idea of the body switch and I like, um, you know, within someone that you're intimate with that you can't trust and this type of thing. I think that that's a pretty, pretty good story. Mm -hmm. uh, Andre wants to know uh, what's your favorite body horror film? I don't know. I guess I'd have to say society <laughs> only <laughs> because the body horror is really big. It but, is. I don't know. Every everything is all, all horror. Almost is, is body horror. Every time there's a transformation, I don't know the thing, um, uh, the fly. Uh, you know, I don't know how much. What what aren't body horror? <laughs> the original Nightmare on Elm Street has some pretty oh, cool definitely. body horror. You know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, it's it's hard to it's hard to to you know. I mean, that was a you know that was kind of a genre, a subgenre. Um, but um, I guess any, you know, any movie where there's some, any kind of transformation in a horror movie, I guess we'd call body horror, of somebody turning into a werewolf or somebody melting down or I don't know. Yeah. Uh, last one more here. Madeline wants to know, uh, will the plastic surgeon with Corbin Burnson ever happen? I wish we have the script. We couldn't get the tight. We couldn't get the rights to do a sequel to the dentist. We tried, because Corbin really wanted to do it, and so we developed a, um, uh, you know, something similar, the plastic surgeon, which would just have more body horror in it than the mm -hmm. dentist. It's not. It wouldn't have the same punch as the dentist because we're not afraid to go to the plastic surgeon because it's something most of us have no no connection with right like the, the dentist, dentist we yeah. all go but corbin and i did have gone we did, did go when we were doing the script we went and visited plastic surgeons and talked to them and a little bit scary what goes on over there i'll tell you it's not it's not i mean they're pretty free to do whatever they want you know and they, i mean i think it would make a fun movie especially mm -hmm. with corbin i mean i think the fun of it would be seeing would be seeing Corbin kind of kind of go bananas again. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Alan, he just wants to say, uh, he wants to thank you for his, your movies, especially From Beyond, Society, and Dagon, and that From Beyond was his introduction to Lovecraft. Yeah, that's interesting because in From Beyond, the short story, I think it's only a few pages long, 
And actually, we used up all the short story before the opening credits of the movie. <laughs> so, and we changed the characters. We changed, mm -hmm. we made Crawford Tillinghast be the, you know, we, we in, invented the character of Dr. Pretorius. Um, but it was, in, yeah, it was interesting. We, hey, that has bloody, um, brain eating, you know, eating yeah. eye. And of course, we had the pineal get real big, which Jeffrey Combs wasn't real happy about, but <laughs> he put up with it. Uh -huh. And I think it's maybe Barbara Crampton's best movie. I think. Yeah, I mean, she's I think really she, great it's, it, I mean, it's her movie. Mm -hmm. She's the one that goes through the changes, but she gets, you know, in Reanimator, she's just like the girlfriend mm -hmm. to be kidnapped, you know, the someone who has to be kind of saved. But in, um, <clears throat> in From Beyond, she's, um, she goes from being a very in control professional person and then she step by step just becomes a blithering maniac at the end. <laughs> the last scene of her um, laughing with a bloody face and a broken knee after jumping out of the house. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good horror clip. Oh yeah. I just have another question before we wrap up here. I'm just wondering if you have any advice for aspiring filmmakers yeah i don't know i guess just if you want to do it make movies you just do it you know I, I think it's a good idea to try to do it seriously and to try to i mean i don't know how you get to the point where you know how to what a story is or how to write a script because i still have trouble with it i it just always seems like you're beating your head against the wall. Um, and I think that um, it's a good idea to, to take it seriously and, and um, think about what you're, you know, how you're using the camera, you know, and not just, I mean, I'm not a big fan. I, everything can work, but I kind of feel like, you know, you should have the shot be fixed if there's not a reason for it not to be and put it on, put it on a tripod and not think that, Oh no, we'll just get this. And then we're going to get that. And when you see that, all that comes across, you know, I mean, every shot, the way the shots are put together and what the shots are makes a big difference. The framing makes a big difference. It's a good idea to try to, to think about that and, and try to, um, try to take it seriously. And I don't know how you learn. I mean, sometimes I think there's a certain type of cinematic storytelling IQ that can't be taught. You know, I'm a, I'm a basketball fan. I'm trying to remember who the players were. There was some, some player uh, rookie that, that they, you know, a, a um, longtime star on the team said, well, I can teach him how to play in the NBA, but I can't teach in basketball like you. And I think to a certain degree, you can teach people how to write a script and how to direct and how to do a camera. You can learn that, if not just on YouTube, if 
all these millions of film schools that are out there just dying to take your money and somehow make you think that you might get it back by working in the film industry, uh, which is a pretty big stretch. But it's, um, I think some people just have an IQ about what they're, you know, how you tell a story in a movie. And I'm not sure you can actually learn that. I, I think you have to have some instinct, an instinct for that. But I think that you, you, I, I think that the worst thing to do is to just do it um, kind of, you know, kind of in an easy way without um, just figuring that, hey, we don't need lights because the, I mean, you could shoot with your iPhone. It'll shoot in low light levels. And people always say, yeah, that's the good thing about digital. There's low light levels. But, you know, when you have to light something, you're making a choice. You know, if we were, if this was daytime, I would just have the sun coming in. Well, I know that my screen is bright. So if I don't turn it down, you'll see the reflection of the screen in my, in my glasses. Well, that's not good, right? So I've already had to make a choice to darken the scene. And that means I've got to come in and bring some lights, depending on how I want to look, right? And if the light's coming from one side or another, it means something. Um, you know, usually it takes three lights, you know. You need one light to just lighten up the set and, and a key light and then so an edge light or a fill light. And all this stuff matters. And, you know, I sometimes think the best way to learn about shooting a movie, at least in a classic way, is to get on a black, get on a darkened stage that there is no light and you have to light it and there are no sets. So you've got to make the walls and bring it all in. Nothing's for chance. You're, you're having to make decisions. Whereas when you shoot and you can shoot on digital, well, you can just go into any location and say, yeah, this is how it looks. Well, you haven't really made a lot of choices. So I, I think that, which isn't to say that you shouldn't go shoot, you know, at the Starbucks or your basement or whatever. It just means that you should think about what, what you're telling with that, with those, with that image and how and how, why anybody should watch the movie from one shot to another. When I'm making a movie, I'm always worried that I'm going to lose the audience, that if, if for three seconds, they, their mind wanders, you may not get it back. And so I always think, wow, you've got to keep taking them, got to, you know, got to stay ahead of them so that you, so that they don't, you know, how every movie you get bored at one point, usually they all keep your interest at the beginning, mm -hmm. but at one point you get tired. It's 90 minutes at least long. And that's the trick is how to keep it, how to keep enough going in your story, in your characters. You have to be very careful not to have, to have first to have a casting that looks like the characters are supposed to be, 
but then also have pe people who have the acting chops to be able to do those roles. And of course, most people that are starting out, they're, they're gonna use their friends as actors and maybe they can work, maybe they can't, but you use what you can. But if you're dealing with people with less formal that haven't been, you know, kind of going to the, to the different acting programs and stuff and learning a style of acting, well, you shouldn't give them roles that are outside of their experience. So it's okay to have your friend play a barista because they probably can, probably something they could do. You probably don't want them to play like a big time lawyer when when they're like 25 years old and and barely got through college. You know, um, I think that you you it's best to stay in with um, with you know what's with you know to stay kind of in within your resources. So I don't know. I I think do it and. Try to try to let try to let other people watch your work, and listen to what they say because that's another thing most people don't want to do. Even me, I don't want to do it. I hate having to show the movie while I'm cutting it or something. I don't want to hear people not think it's wonderful because I'm afraid it's not. You know, it's never as bad as you as you're afraid it is. It's never as good as you wish it was. And it's better to listen to people and try to get some professional people involved, people who actually have experience. But I don't know. I don't think there's any any real good advice, except that if you want to do it, do it. Why not? <laughs> Even though that sounds like really like just like the most basic thing, but I think that is great advice because a lot of people think of doing something. And if you don't actually do it, then it's nothing but a thought. Yeah, and you can do a, do a short film. Just fool around with it. If you yeah, and then nowadays there's place, well, you know, festivals or even put on YouTube or, you know, something. Yeah, but, and the other thing, you know, you got to do all the bits. You got to do the sound mix. You got to do the colorization. You've got, I mean, there's so many levels, sound effect. It's building the soundtrack is very, is a very, is a real thing in itself. And most people don't, don't want to do that because they can just record the sound and they don't realize that a lot of what you're getting from a movie is the complete package. When I moved to Spain, people used to, you know, the people I worked with there, they'd say, hey, how come these American movies sell everywhere? We, you have these American movies here and they're terrible. You know, and we got movies that are better and we can't sell them. And I say, yeah, but the cheap horror movies or cheap genre movies, whatever, from LA, they maybe they're not very good. We know that, but they're a real movie. And it's the equivalent if you're gonna go to a restaurant, it could be you could get better food at a street vendor, you know, but you may go to a restaurant that's quite expensive and if you're thinking about the money, you might go, wow, this, I can make this better than this at home, you know. But what you're getting is a white tablecloth and nice dishes and low lighting and people serving you. And that whole 
that whole ambiance, that whole package is, is what you're paying for because you want to go out to dinner. And if you're watching a movie, it could be really great. But if the technical parts of it aren't built the way kind of a regular old commercial Hollywood style movie is, well, you don't want to fight it. You know, you don't, you want the good lighting and you want the careful, you want the good cutting. You want the sound effects, the music, the atmosphere, all the sound to work right, the foley. You want when people walk, you can hear their clothes and their footsteps, but not too loud. And all that stuff takes, I mean, it's a real, it's, you know, everybody wants to make a movie. They want to be the singer songwriter. They want to write it. They want to direct it. They want to edit it. They want to shoot it. They want to do the sound. They want to do the music because they think that's what makes them an artist. And the problem is, is that just writing a script is a whole craft of its own. Directing is a whole thing. DPing, I'd much prefer to have a director of photography that shot a bunch of movies and all he thinks about is is the cinematography, you know, and let me tell him what I want and let him bring what he has to the table. And the same thing with a writer and the direct and an editor. A lot of people edit their own movies and it's fantastic. You know, I think Roberto Rodriguez does, you know, but for me, I want to have an editor who looks at the material fresh. He doesn't come in with with this all this. You know, I, I'll look at a shot and know what we went through to, to do it. And I'll value it a different way. Mm-hmm. Or I'll not like something because it didn't work the way I wanted. And I'll have a negative attitude towards it. Whereas the editor will just get all the material and see what he's got and, and maybe show you something and do it properly and not, you know, Everything doesn't have to be your personal stamp. You don't have to sign every prop and every frame and, you know, but that's what a lot of people want to do. And also you can't get other people that are any good to do it unless you pay them. Well, now you got to get a bunch of money. (laughs) Now you're producing and I, I, you know, it's just a very complicated process, but you want to do it you ought to do it <laughs> and do it right is what you're saying yeah and I by the way take it seriously yeah what you said about the editor uh just from doing the show i've noticed that um usually the best people who edit their own stuff are people who are editors by trade because i think they can see it then could, just... could be if they yeah i mean it just depends i like i like collaborating with people i just like to be able to make the decision set the set the direction and make the decision. That's what I, but I like working with other people, you know, but, but some people are, they can write and, and direct and edit it or, you know, some people are do that well. Um, And yet sometimes we see this stuff, you know, you see these big movies and you see the director writing it and you go, God, couldn't they have gotten like a real writer? (laughs) You know, to write it, because sometimes that's the weak part. Something can be brilliant at the, at the whole directing and making, the, and maybe the story, they just need a better writer, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good. 
Well, hey, uh, listen, I got to go. I was just going to so. say, it's been great having you on. I know we're way over the hour we told you that <laughs> we were going to do. So. Well, it was hours. my pleasure. Yeah. It was my pleasure. And hey, have a happy new year. I, for Thank one, you. am very happy. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to complain about seeing 2020 in the rearview mirror. <laughs> yeah. I hope that 2021 Agreed. is going to be good for all of us. I agree. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Happy Happy I thank you Happy so much. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. All right. So we're going to go to, we're going to be doing our 13 doctors of December here. Now I can play a, uh, a, a, um, a, a video or something. If anyone needs to get a drink or anything, or we can go right into it. It's up to you guys. I can go right into it. I can too. I'm a diehard chief. Right. I can do it. Okay, good because cool. I had nothing. I had nothing uh, lined up. You lied. <laughs> you were just open. Yeah. We weren't going to call you bluff. Yeah. Yeah. Then I would just <laughs> ramble as I go and, and do stuff. And, and, I got a quick game of Parcheesi to play, and then I'll come back. <laughs> All right, excellent. Uh, but yeah, big thanks to Brian Usner for staying so long. I knew I knew we were way over the hour, but I thought it was going really well, and I thought we'd uh, see how much we could get. So and it worked out good. Yeah. Yeah, he was lovely and inspirational. Yeah, and uh, Tristan and I recorded an interview earlier too, which is going to be up on the up on the website probably tomorrow sometime. And interestingly enough, some of the things talked about with uh, Brian was also talked about in this other interview. Oh, can you say who it's with, or is it? Yeah, Aaron Moorhead and um, Justin Benson, I believe, uh, who made Synchronic. Oh, and uh, there's some Lovecraft. And uh, pineal gland, I forget how you say that word, and uh, it's interesting. There's some, uh, there's some crossover. So, let's see here. We, uh, so third, we're gonna first of all, this is the last, uh, I believe this will be the last live show of 2020, unless something happens, but I'm pretty sure this will be the last uh, live show of 2020. Yeah, we're running out of days, I think, right? Yeah, this is tomorrow. There was one, there was gonna be one other guest, but uh, it hasn't. He hasn't gotten back the exact day, so we might have another doctor in, in January. But I think I think we'll make it work. Good little carryover. That's all right. Exactly. So um, the good doctor out there came up with the idea of doing the Doctors of December, which uh, which is a cool thing because we're going to talk about you know doctors and horror, and also we're giving some tribute to the real heroes of 2020 here. Which is a little weird to say because we're probably going to talk about not so good doctors here yeah. on the show. That's true. I think I might have one or two doctors that aren't like evil doctors, but true. not many. So big thanks to good doctor out there and to, for Trista for uh, yes, great idea. Thanks, guys. And yeah. um, I'd like to preface mine by saying that um, we, because I had um, the doctor advising me, mine are actual MDs. Oh, okay. Oh. But, but we obviously have a lot of respect for PhDs and super glad to have one in the White House instead of a supermodel. And I know it's like a weird thing right now, but yeah. we have the utmost respect for educators and PhDs. Just for this purpose, we went with MDs. That's yeah. all. I try to do the that. same thing, but I probably have some that aren't necessarily. But. All right. I don't so. know all the credentials of everybody on my list. Unacceptable. I just want to say, we're at the Doctor Fives didn't make my list because he's because he's not really 
Whoa, whoa, what? <laughs> but he would he would make my list just for just the greatest doctors. Oh yes, people yes. doctor in the name. All right, uh, so I'll start with thirteen. I usually go last here. Okay. Uh, my thirteen is uh, the original Halloween because Doctor Loomis is amazing, and I've always if it wasn't for the Loomis character, Michael Myers, <coughs> that's scary because he doesn't necessarily do much. He kills some people. That's cool. But Dr. Loomis sells the whole of my, uh, of Michael Myers. He's like, first of all, he's, I, I always like this in movies when it's someone of science or someone who, um, you know, the, the opposite of the supernatural. And then they come to a certain point where they themselves believe the supernatural. So, this is a great line, a great line in the movie. He's like, he spent so many years uh, trying to reach him. And then he just realized he's evil <laughs> and boom. Cause Michael Myers can't speak. Yep. So how do you, how do you present him as just this evil being through Dr. Loomis? So, uh, and Donald know, Pleasance is so good. Oh yeah. You should, maybe you shouldn't be higher on my list, but yeah. 13 Halloween. Excellent choice. I, my number 13 is uh, Dr. Caligari, he of he of the cabinet, and uh, one of those cool uh, silent flicks that like it's got a great look to it. I don't really think the story is like one of my favorites, but like visually, I love the movie. Um, yeah, that's. <laughs> That's my number I, 13. I am going to be embarrassed to say I have never seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's it's worth watching. It's, I um, should watch it. It's kind of like love, the Golem, I think, where like it's the look of the movie well, so yeah, good. The German expressionism is... Yeah, but then... Nosferatu is only... The payoffs, meh, it's okay. I need to watch it. I even put him in, in the banner without seeing the movie. I know it's terrible. That is my New Year's resolution to walk the watch the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. All right. Did you see the golem? Maybe you should brush up on all your silence. Okay. I would like to, I'd also like to watch a lot more um hammer films because I'm not really uh yeah, I've not seen a lot of hammer horror. Get the stepping on the hammers, fella. Well which oh I've we've had uh we've had actually opportunities to have some more hammer uh people on the show, so I should Ooh. watch. Very I won't give away names, but a lot of uh, women in the Hammer Horror, which would be very uh, great guess. Yep. Number 13, Trista, you weird actor. <laughs> My 13 is uh, Anything for Jackson. Oh, awesome. It's one of my favorite films of this year. And um, I thought Julian uh, Richings was amazing in his role. And it was a great interview that we just had. I agree 100%. I didn't even think about putting the list, but that's an excellent choice. And that may make an appearance when we do our 13 of 2020, because I agree is one of the best movies I've seen this year. Excellent choice. I did not think of. Number 12. And we even had him on the show for uh, this month. Um. Number 12 for me is uh, Dr. Chenard, I believe his name is, from Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Oh. And uh, again, sort of in a way like Dr. Loomis is a little different, but I like the the fact that he's like this evil guy who he's the reason why uh, the Cenobites are back in the sequel because he's 
he's using the box and he's using his own patients as like guinea pigs to to bring these uh to bring the Cenobites back. He's a very evil man, and then he himself becomes a Cenobite, and he is pretty uh pretty cool looking guy. The big what is he, what is big he worm, the big penis worm on his head. It's been a while since I've seen that one. So yeah, I watched them all not that long when we did uh, Hellraiser Month, and I watched uh, all of them. I, I'm not a huge fan of Hellbound, to be honest, but um, I do think it's a cool character, and I do think it's a good movie. I think they um, they overstepped a little bit. I think uh, they tried to do a little too much with the movie. But I still like it. And he's the my number 12. All right, my number 12. I have uh, Dr. Giggles, which uh, is a really cool movie. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen it in a long time. And I, great kills, and uh, he's just, think, a, just a cool character. I think it's one of the underrated slasher films. I agree. Very fun movie. Larry Drake's amazing. Maybe yeah, higher awesome. on this. That's understandable. Yes. The dirty I dozen love- for Trista. Yes. Okay. Um, arachnophobia. Ooh. I love arachnophobia, but I um I haven't seen it for a while, so I didn't uh, explain. So Jeff Daniels is a doctor, and the doctors have have to work. Uh, with the exterminator John Goodman, who I love to uh, yeah. solve the problem. He's so great, man. Yeah, he really is. That's a, yeah, that's cool because not too many of these do I have a uh, a heroic doctor. Yeah, same. Here. And at first, they kind of think he's responsible for the people dying, which is interesting. Um, like he's not a good enough doctor, I think. Or 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 he yeah, he's like missing something i think an old lady dies and she had just become his patient and they thought he missed something but it's really the spider bite. oh yeah i think you're right uh real quick here in the chat uh, the barbarian sasquatch says uh, i have a question how did you get uh richard stanley for that wonderful interview a few years back um i actually thought about trying to get him back for this month to talk about island of dr moreau for doctors of uh December month. I mean, I just asked him to come on the show, but uh, it is one of a great interview. Go back and, and watch in the archives or listen to in the archives. Unfortunately, he was actually on video, but we weren't doing video yet at the time. And it's a really unfortunate because Richard Stanley was in his castle in France. It was an amazing backdrop. Wow. He's sitting there in, a, in a, like an abandoned castle, smoking, uh, not tobacco. And yeah, it was an amazing interview. So, yeah, I definitely recommend watching that. But thank you for bringing that up. Uh, excellent number 12, Tristan. Thank you. My number 11 is fresh in my mind because I watched it for this interview. And it's a much, uh, I don't want to say like a better movie than I remember, but it is. It's a better movie than I remember. And I liked it at the time, but I think it's, I like it even more now. And that's The Dentist for a lot of the reasons I brought up. Um, I think it's inherently creepy because we, we all have this like fear of the dentist. And then to add to that, like you already have the fear because you had because the guy's doing stuff in your or girl is doing stuff in your mouth. And and then you I think like the sounds are already creepy, the drills and the dental sounds. But then to add to that, like, first of all, you know, you're thinking, well, he knows what he's doing. My dentist knows what he's doing. 
But then to add like, well, what if there's, what if your dentist will off or you had a bad day? And then it adds this whole other element and it, it makes it a very creepy movie. And, uh, uh, Baron Corbin, not Baron Corbin, the wrestler, Corbin Burnson, the actor, he really nails the role. And as I mentioned in the interview, I do not like like really, really soft people who talk like this. They were very, it makes you wouldn't me, go to a Mr. Rogers dentist. Is that what you're saying? No, I actually like Mr. Rogers, but now you bring it up. Maybe Fred like, Rogers, though, had that. He like, did, yeah. Really think, super. I mean, maybe, but I think, I think he was genuinely nice. But usually, yeah. who's the singer? He's singing. I'm trying to think of. Oh, I should think of. Um, anyway, there's a singer who this is way too soft singing, and it really puts me off. And ASMR has the opposite effect on me. It makes me uneasy. <laughs> it makes me angry. So I don't. I've, so I've that, known people like that that yeah, watch so, them and actually get like really angry. I get I it. Smooth jazz freaks me out it unnerves me understand yeah. okay I'm, I'm glad i'm glad that my peep here are with me all right <laughs> yep yep we're behind you too. Right. and also i can feel your pain with the dentist because neil and i both went to a dentist at one time I was gonna was bring a, him up. an ex-military dentist and he was you could tell when he was having a rough day because like he'd put his knee in your mouth and spread your jaw open and he he filed. He was a rough guy. He filed one of my teeth down with no no Novocaine once, which was not a good time. And no. um, I almost brought this up in the interview because the he did a root canal. He did a couple. Both of them fell apart. But anyway, he did a root canal, and um, so he's to do it. You have to heat up this element. Like I think it's like the epoxy or something. It heat up some. And he literally had a Bic lighter, and he's like, oh, I got the ah. job lot, which is this this uh, closeout chain here. He's like, 99 cents, Bic lighter. And I'm just like, what the fuck, dude? And then, <laughs> and I also, I clearly remember a couple other stories with him real quickly. One, <laughs> it was it was when uh, gay marriage was, was people, when they're trying to legalize gay marriage. And he just starts going on this anti-gay marriage rant while he's working yeah. on it. I was like thinking, like he know he doesn't know anything about me. Like I'm not in agreement with this. And why would you even start to have like this kind of conversation with someone you're like, like that's like the most like that's yeah, kind of inappropriate, right yeah. there. Yeah. And then I also remember this was uh, it was very poor. <laughs> well, you have time. more more experiences with the guy than I did. Yeah, very poor at the time. I had no money, no insurance, and um, so. He said I needed a deep clean, which was like to clean in the gums. And so he sent me this other this other specialist. And he's like, but he, he's like telling me he's like this horrible guy and blah, blah, blah. So I go to him and he's like this old hippie and he's awesome. And he just like, he real. I was pretty young at the time and I didn't have insurance. And he's just like, oh, just get out of here. Don't worry about it. And he didn't charge me anything. And I was like, this guy's way cooler. Wow. <laughs> And I, I think the other guys yep. didn't like him because he was like uh, probably four. He might have been pro game marriage, yeah. right? But yeah, he was the he was just awesome. And I always remember that he just he's like, ah, oh, just get out of here. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to anyway, like those dig up those wound. old wounds. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm just saying that he was kind of rough. And stuff. He was. I'm not. I'm not a fan. No. <laughs> Uh, and my number 11 is Dr. Loomis, who's already been mentioned. 
By the way, no. Will <laughs> Evan for Trista. My eleven is uh, Jacob's ladder. Oh, nice. Excellent. And um, Lewis Black is Jacob's doctor in the film, and um, they're doing these medical experiments. It's a great movie. That's one I actually wanted to revisit for this list because I, I hadn't seen it for one. I wish I would have uh, revisited. I revisited a few movies, but uh, that's one I do what I like to. I need to watch again. I haven't seen it for a long time. And I think when I saw it was when it first came out, I was kind of young, and I don't know if I appreciated the movie. Uh, you know, I was probably like a teenager when it came out. Good choice. My number 10 is Pet Cemetery. Because I wanted I wanted one heroic doctor on the list. And yep. he's a good guy. Well, and this is kind of heroic too. Is he? My oh. question. Oh. Is he heroic? Did he or did he take a troubled child <coughs> and make him worse? Is he the reason Michael Myers, or is he really inherently evil? Wow. That's I my never thought of that. So uh, anyway, Pet Cemetery, And again, I always like, uh, I mentioned earlier, um, so he's a man of science. And I think it adds to the uh, the horror, and it adds to the, um, the movie has a dread to it. And this man of science, he... He's bringing back, you know, his loved ones through um, some kind of weird, you know, witchcraft in a way. So I, li- I like that about the movie. But I also like the interaction with him and um, and the ghost, Pasqua- oh, yeah. Pascal. Yeah, that's great stuff. So that was number 10. My number 10, Dr. Hyder from, uh, from Human Centipede. Who, uh, be a lot higher than mine. Peter Laser, really good, um, just great in that role. Um, just a really cool, evil scientist, doctor guy. He, uh, he's a man. Yeah. I have my eye on my list. I'll should I talk about it now or should I talk about it then? Either way. We'll talk about it when we get home. All, All right. right. Number ten, Trista. My ten is Brain Dead. Nice. Which is a movie I love, and I really like uh, Bill Pullman in it, and I like Bud Court too. That's a movie I haven't seen for a long time either. I've never seen it at the yeah. at the um, at the theater. That's one I have to revisit as well, because I don't remember a lot about it, but I remember enjoying it at the time. Number nine, uh, Flatliners, which I don't know if they're they might not necessarily be villains, but. Um, this is one I rewatched uh, for the show, and uh, I probably like it a little more than I did at the time. Uh, great cast, great ensemble cast, uh, pretty much everyone's starring it. And uh, it's just a really interesting movie. A lot better than the remake. The remake is, uh, it's a f- f- the remake's weird because it's, it's, uh, it's almost like a sequel. I don't know. But I don't think anyway, I've ever seen the remake. It's not particularly good. It's also just kind of like pointless. Like you already had the movie. Yeah. So yeah, number nine for me is Flatliners. I like it. Good choice. My number nine, uh, Dr. Uh, Polidorius from not, not the one from, uh, 
from Reanimator, which I which I like him, or not Reanimator, um, from Beyond, but uh, the old um, Bride of Frankenstein character. Oh, okay. Doctor that brings a little homunculus, uh, tiny people, and befriends the monster and gives him a little bit of speech and stuff. A great character, I thought. Um, it's really not a nice guy either. Mm. Great pick. I didn't even think of it. Number nine, Trista. My nine is Antiviral, which is a <laughs> film that I love, and I uh, really enjoyed our interview with Brennan Cronenberg. I did as well. Excellent choice. You really I don't cool know if I've seen that, that too, one. by the way. Thank you. Really yeah, I do like that. that. That's a great look. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. Is that why we kept the show going? Because you are attached to this outfit. I am. I just need to. Uh, I could watch it in, in you know, <laughs> later for all eternity. <laughs> but I'd rather watch it live here. But I love the. I love the fly. It all works. I like. I had something yeah. I would wear myself. A mutual, uh, someone a we both know suit. is where I got the flower, which right. is kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. It's a very interesting talked about uh, before. So uh, off there, uh, number eight, the Invisible Man. He might be much higher on my list. I was debating: is he is he a, a doctor or scientist, or does not or does it not matter? But. So I just went out. It doesn't matter. He's the Invisible Man. I think it's the most underrated, underappreciated uh, Universal monster movie. I think it's a fantastic film. I put it right under Frankenstein. I think it's one of the greatest villains ever in movies. Uh, he's he's uh, incredibly. Fu- he's a fun maniac. Yeah, he's and a, sympathetic. He, he's got he's got it all. He checks yeah, a lot of and boxes. And even like his horrible, like he throws a train off the tracks and like kills <laughs> like hundreds of thousands of people. But at the same time, you kind of root for him. Doctor Jack Griffin. Awesome special effects for the time. Yep. Iconic look. I dressed up as him once. See, that always goes up in my list if I dressed up as him. But yeah, <laughs> Invisible Man. Excellent then, choice. Uh, asterisk under that is uh, the son of the Invisible Man from the amazing one of my favorite comedies, Amazon Women on the Moon. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, one of the best scenes ever. That's yeah. just if you've not thing. seen Amazon Women on the Moon, blind me. There must be a ghost in it. So yeah. he's the son of the Invisible Man. So he's all wrapped up. And so he's in the bar, and he starts oh, unwrapping himself. I think just Neil did. Can you hear us, Neil? <laughs> I can hear you. Neil is perfectly still. He's been bitten oh, by a man. snake. Oh, he's got like... such a coy little look, <laughs> doesn't he? I know. That's the perfect shot. I love it. I know. It's perfect. I mean, it's Christmas. Yep. It's oh, so no. Oh, wow. Oh, welcome back. Wow, that's weird. It just, like, returns. You were like teleported, I think. For can a you see me again? <laughs> yes. Can oh, you hear us? Yeah, I, I completely lost internet, and then and then when it came back, like it reconnects this, and I think it reconnected us live too. Oh and wow! It, and it, and oh it good. To record. Crazy. Oh, should I say my aid again then, or yeah, think, yeah, because uh, I think we probably would have lost it. 
All right, my number eight is uh, Dr. Gogol from Mad Love, Peter Lorre. Oh, nice. Even shaved his head, and he's got a big fur coat when you first meet him, and it looks pretty damn cool. Awesome. Young, Very dapper cool. Peter Lorre. Nice. Dr. I'm a huge Gogol. Peter Lorre fan. If you've never seen Mad Love, I, I recommend it. Love. Because then you also have, um, there weren't a lot of movies with. Uh, My lighting's not as good now, but that's it. Who's, who's the guy that was uh, Dr. Frankenstein and the original Frankenstein? Um, you should know this. Yeah. yeah I should too. Uh, Colin Clive. Is that his name? I think. Uh, yeah. He doesn't he get died enough young. love. Because yeah, he died young. He wasn't in it from the monster, but. He's but he's actual... also in it. He's also in Mad Love. Oh, okay, cool. He's, uh, he's real good in that, too. I'll have to watch it. It's a really good movie. Um, Lori's great. He's obsessed with this woman in it, and uh, just got to have her. Just, And he's this uh, brilliant doctor. He's very arrogant, and nothing's like... Nothing that he wants is going to be out of his range. He's just going to have this woman no matter what. And, uh, yeah, mad love. Check it out. Awesome. I will check that out. I like these picks because there's Trist has a bunch I'd like to revisit, and you have ones I'm not. I know. Thinking. You guys are we're all, all over the place. Yeah. So Trista, what is your number eight? Oh, My I'm number sorry. eight uh, has already been mentioned, and it's Pet Cemetery. Oh, excellent. Excellent choice. Yep. Lucky number seven. This will probably be on everyone's list, I think. A Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yep, yep. I mean, what more can you say? It's Hannibal Lecter. Yep, one of the true icons of cannibalism. I also do think, though, that the Hannibal Lecter, um, actually, I think uh, all three actors who played Hannibal Lecter do a really good job. And I do think that the... um, Hannibal Lecter in uh, Manhunter is is really underrated. I think it's starting to get a little more uh, respect than than it used to. But um, yeah, one needs some love. You're right. And I really like the series too. Until yep. the last season, yep. I wasn't a big fan. But the yeah. Mads is so good in that. Uh, the Great Dane himself. No, if I'm going to pick one, I'm going to pick uh, Sounds Lambs. I also prefer um, Hannibal Lecter in behind the bar, but in prison or in the mental, I think, I think it's more effective where he, he can, cause it's like shown he has so much power with, without being physically out in the world. Agree. I think it's creeper. All right. Number seven for you, Troy. Number seven, uh, I bet will be on everybody's list as well. Dr. Henry Jekyll. Um, who then will become the villainous Mr. Hyde. But uh, Dr. Jekyll, he's number seven. I thought he'd be higher on my list, but as I was making my list, I was like, mm, great character, but there are better ones. He didn't actually my make opinion. my list because I don't have really a, uh, I love the character too, but I don't really have like a, I don't have any of the, I don't really love any of the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde movies. Yeah, that's understandable. There's uh, go back to the old March one. That one's real good. Yeah, there's actually that. a good uh, British one too with uh, Christopher Lee in it, and uh, it's really good. 
Same reason I didn't have another doctor on the list because I'm not a big fan of any of the movies, but I love uh, the, this doctor. But we'll, t- we'll talk about it later. Someone will probably have another list. Uh, so you number seven, Tristan. My seven has been mentioned, and it's Dr. Loomis from Halloween as well. Excellent. Uh, my number six is The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Uh, I think Whoa. this is one of the uh, better modern horror movies. Really took me off. Uh, like I was, I didn't know what to expect uh, from the trailer. It's a really original movie. Like it real, it's a movie that really, like you don't know what's going to happen, and like you, it really just sucks you in. And there's not necessarily a lot of action, you know, for a long period of time in the movie. But I love it. Really original film. Uh, it's good stuff. Excellent choice. You're number six, Troy. My number six is um. He's been in three movies that I know of, uh, Dr. Moreau. But I think I'm going to go with um, probably the original one. I uh, I think it's always best to go with the original. But, that was the guy, the person I was referencing. Oh, okay. I don't really love any of the movies, but I like Did you ever see the Island of Lost Souls? Uh, a long time one? ago. Yeah. Not for a long time. Because, uh, yeah, just. Uh, Really cool character messing around, you know, where you shouldn't have been messing and uh, turning animals into people and Yahoo. Yeah, I'm not. See, that's a, that's one I wouldn't be against the remake. Well, the last one, like even at Brando is Dr. Moreau and yeah, he still couldn't get it right. So. No, that was, the, the, the documentary about it is fantastic. It's amazing, yeah. actually. Yeah, with Richard, that's why that's why I booked Richard Stanley years ago because he's just an amazing character. But I I even enjoy the 1970s one. It's like uh, it's got good color and a lot of things happening in it. And, and yeah. a, a a dark and note, Lancaster, you know, a dark note on the the Richard Stanley interview on is um he predicted the Weinstein stuff months really? before it came out. He was like, "This is going to come out." Um, about Weinstein, and he told like personal stories about his involvement, well, his not involvement, but his uh, what he he witnessed, and that's part of the reason why he left like Hollywood. Uh, so number six for Tristan. My number six has been mentioned as well, and it's Hannibal Lecter. Uh, the Silence of the Lambs. Do you have a prefer? Do you have a pre- is the Silence of the Lambs, or do you have a one that stands out? You know what's funny is I actually, um, just now when you were talking about how effective it is when he's in that cell, mm-hmm. I, I agree with that 100%. And I didn't even realize it's something that sort of sticks with me and I think of often. It's such a crazy um, power move, right? Because you think, like, how could this person be effective? Mm-hmm. So you think you'd be safe from him? He's behind yeah. bars, wow. which makes it yeah. that much creepier. I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, the stakes are so high. I think the whole time you're wondering how, <coughs> what's he gonna do? How's he gonna do it? So I love that as well. Excellent choice. Number five for me is uh, Day of the Dead, uh, the third Romero film in the uh, zombie. Uh, well, it's not a trilogy anymore, but to me, it's a trilogy. Yeah. The uh, 
There's some movie. Might be I a could, sextet now or something like that. Yeah, I was not a fan of it as a, as a kid. Most people who know the show, I love Dawn of the Dead and I love Night of the Living Dead. Dawn of the Dead is my favorite uh, zombie movie ever. Day of the Dead, I could never get into as a kid. I thought it was kind of boring. But when I watched it later in life, I had grown to really like it. I still think there's stuff about it. I think the acting is way over the top. <laughs> but uh, I think it's a really good movie. And uh, I like uh, that it's really the battle of uh, science versus, uh, uh, I guess, the military or whatever. But uh, I like that aspect of the movie and uh, the doctor in it. Now, there's more than one doctor, but the doctor who is, uh, who's trying to uh, doctor. yeah, trying to work with Bub, I think, is great. It's creepy, and he's just a weirdo, but, uh, you yeah. know. Good stuff, but uh, it's a great movie, and also not that has anything to do with uh, Doctors of December, but uh, some of the best uh, zombie effects. The effects I love in that one, you're right. Yeah, that one still has never really grown on me. I've tried it like uh, since I was a younger person, but I don't yeah, know I really, why. I, I really just, like it. it's not my favorite of those, but uh, yeah, um, there's st- I, I get it, there's stuff in it I don't think is perfect by any means, but uh, I like it. I, I like, the, like main it as guy the progression of the movies. Yeah, the main we, military uh, guy. He's so great. Man. Yeah, we had him on the show. What's yeah, he's just a madman. Yeah, he was a little. Yeah, I uh, guess he's just kind of a madman in real life. Yeah, he. I remember Annabelle mentions he was a little creepy to her, but but it, not, she thought it. She found it funny. Anyway, but, uh, that was number five. My number five has been mentioned by both of you guys, and it's uh, Hannibal Lecter. Dr. Lecter is my number five. Not really anything new to add except for, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm in the minority. I prefer, I prefer the Mads. Uh, rendition. I do. I just think he, he adds a little flair to the character I, I really like. Yeah, no, uh, Maybe I just have a man crush on Mads. I don't. He's a good actor. He is. I love the guy. Num- so that's number five. Number Sexiest five. man in Denmark, I'll have you know. Because I'm not, because it's because I'm from the Cape. Yeah, you're not Danish, and then, you know, it would have to be a recount. Right. Number five, Trista. My number five is um, Contagion which I only saw for the first time uh, after the pandemic. So to me, this is the scariest movie ever (laughs) to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's some great doctors, Kate Winslet, Lawrence Fishburne, um, Marianne Cotillard, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, Cotillard, I think it is. She's French, but they're all hugely talented. And it's a very effective film. That's an awesome choice. I actually didn't think of that. And uh, definitely fits. And again, I like I like that uh, it's um, heroic doctors in horror. Excellent choice. Yeah. It wasn't for Trista. All, all our doctors are just <laughs> menacing. They'd all be creeps and stuff. Yep. Uh, my number four has been mentioned, but uh, I've always loved this movie. I remember seeing it at the theater, and I just had a big smile on my face. It's. I'm not even a huge uh, slasher guy, but I think it's an underrated slasher movie. It's Dr. Giggles. It's just fun kills. Larry Drake is just, just has, he makes a, it. Kelly he's has just a ball so playing him. Yeah. yeah. 
It's a, it's just a fun, <laughs> just a fun horror movie. Doctor Giggles. Yep. It's one that always reminds me of like uh like an old DC comic kind oh, of yeah. thing. You know, just he's a perfect the guy, guy goes that. off the rails and just goes nuts. Yeah, and, and if like, I'm just, and if I'm just gonna think of just the best like killer doctor, it would probably be Doctor Giggles. Agreed. Agreed. Or my number five or four. number four. I'm surprised he hasn't been mentioned yet, but I'm thinking he might be later. Dr. Fives is uh, my number four. I love Dr. Fives. Yeah, I didn't put him on my list just because what I said to begin with, but I love yeah. Dr. Fives are my favorite movies. Gotta go uh, Vincent Price. Nobody's cooler. And Fives just kills everybody in these wonderful ways. and Just, just awesome. Just... Uh, See if we got a band that's like all uh, robots and stuff. And you don't really see him speak because he doesn't, you know, he speaks through his little voice thingy. And yeah, Dr. Fives, my oh, number four. Movie I watch a bunch of times. That's probably the first yeah. Vincent Price movie I watched as a kiddo. Yeah, probably is. <clears throat> uh, you're number four, Trista. My number four has um, been mentioned as well, and it's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, um, which is a film that I love. I love German Expressionism. I think it's beautiful. Excellent. I feel bad that I've not seen this movie. (laughs) I hope I don't get kicked off here. You're on probation now. Uh, You'll have to decide in a week or so. (laughs) Number I'm gonna I am gonna I'm gonna make I'm gonna watch it before next show. Okay. My number three, Troy mentioned, much higher in my list, human centipede, Dr. Hyder. Absolutely love it. Most people fixate on 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 sewing people's ass to mouth and all this stuff in the movie. That's part that's obviously part of the movie. But to me, that's that's really not consequential to the movie. The, the movie is about Dr. Hyder and about he's a megalomaniac and he it's about dehumanizing the three people in the centipede. And it's uh, so different from the second one. The second one, he's like this weird, he's like sexually attracted to it. He doesn't, he doesn't even look at these people or any sexual attraction, anything like that. He's just, this is his experiment. Uh, the greatest scene in the movie to me is after he he makes the centipede and he lo- he kisses his own reflection in the mirror. I, that is that's a great scene. Just an amazing yeah. scene. And uh, he is the consummate mad scientist. You're right. Yeah, and it's a and that's the other thing I want to bring up. It's a classic mad scientist movie. Uh, it's even got like the old cliches. It's these uh, women stuck out in the rain instead of a castle. They come upon his house. It's set up like a like a very typical old um, mad scientist movie or an old even just an old horror movie see I love it human centipede yep. Agreed. I also love part two part three Ooh, but not so much but, uh, but and uh, a big thanks to uh, Bill Mosley uh, for telling me to watch a human centipede because I'll be honest I remember when it was coming out and we said I remember like just talking about the premise I was like who the hell wants to watch this movie yep I, it was the first time we had Bill Mosley on, and he was just like, um, I don't always say this, but as, as an actor, 
this is an actor this is a performance that that i loved and like he really put it over for no reason it wasn't yeah. like he's in it or promoting it or anything and he just really put it over and i was like well i gotta watch this and i did and i agreed with and then I was still dragging my feet until you watched it and told me, and then I I finally gave in, and I really enjoyed it too. Yeah, and one of my favorite guests, um, Dieter Laser, great guy. Uh, I had him on the show a couple times. One of my favorite uh, interviews, definitely with him. It was also, I'll put this out there. There's nothing. I don't want to say anything bad about Dieter because I love Dieter and he was a super guy, but it was the hardest interview to ever edit because he he asked he'd really put me over he said you're all oh, the most perfect like <laughs> go overboard put me over but he wanted because english was his second language so he wanted all, everything edited perfect so anytime he didn't quite understand me or vice versa so i had to go through the whole thing and edit out so it was perfect for for dieter but he appreciated it he was very, and well, i got to meet him uh in la which was very cool for the human centipede three uh all right, Troy, your number three. Oh, my uh, my number three, I don't think he's been mentioned yet, but uh, Dr. Herbert West, the reanimator. Just, uh, <laughs> I just love all the movies, actually. I agree. And uh, what's the other doctor gets his, who, who gets his head ripped off? I can't remember he, his name. He deserves to be mentioned, too, because he's yeah, awesome. doing the West thing down um yeah just uh jeffrey combs is so good he is how, how could he's you imagine perfect. anyone else playing that role yeah and he's so straight when he's doing it and like just everything's just i love that movie oh. I, I loved it the first time i saw it and i think i love it just as much now when i watch it three your number three trista my three is the horrible Dr. Hitchcock. Ooh. Which I love. I love Barbara Steele, and um, it's a great homage to Hitchcock. Yeah. I don't think I've seen this. Oh, yeah. It's good I recommend it. It was really subversive for its time because it's about this um, doctor with a necrophiliac tendencies, and it came out in the 60s. Let's oh, right up my alley. <laughs> Necronelia. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm all about this. No, I'm going to check this out. I, I don't know this. I haven't one. seen it in years. I, I really like the movie. Huh, very cool. This is good. Uh, so my number two, uh, Troy just mentioned, Herbert West, Reanimator. Ah, it's just amazing. I loved it ever since I was a kid. I still love it today. Yep. I remember uh, going to see it. Um, it was probably longer now, I think, probably six, seven years ago. But um, it was playing Midnight at Coolidge, 35 millimeter, and it was like an old print. Um, it was an uncut print. In fact, it was a longer print than most of the uncut versions. So I'm not exactly sure what all was different. But anyway, uh, and I went to see with Annabelle, and Annabelle had only ever seen it on our local channel, 38 or whatever, and they cut out a lot. So we are seeing some scenes she had not seen before. And I was just waiting. I was like, oh, if you think that's weird, wait till you see what's coming up. And so that was, uh, that was something to, uh, to, watch, uh, to watch with her and see her reaction. But it's a great movie. You're number two, Troy. 
My number two is uh, Dr. Jack Griffin, the Invisible Man, who's already been mentioned. James Wales. It doesn't get mentioned the enough man. when people talk about great horror directors. So true. Frankenstein. So totally true. Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible yeah. Man. Uh, yeah. Even the moon's afraid of me. Look, it's terrified. <laughs> You're number two, Trista. My number two is Dead Ringers. Ooh. I actually watched this earlier today. Did you oh, really? really? Yeah, and I had it borderline my list. I have honorable mentions. I almost put it in, and then I kept, I kept moving stuff around, but yeah. I think he's so great as an actor, just both roles. Mm-hmm. He's really great. I think he could have gone really over the top with like the good twin, bad twin, but um, it's very nuanced. Per- both performances are very nuanced. I agree. It was. Yeah. Uh, I actually was not a fan of it when I was younger, but watching it again, I was like, "This is a really, a really good movie." It probably didn't hold my attention when I was young, but it's uh, a more adult film. Yeah, definitely yeah, it is. But yeah, it was great. It, uh, like I said, it kept moving in and out of my my list here. But that's an excellent pick. Yep. Uh, all right, number one. It's probably no surprise to anybody. <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein and the original Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. They're both fantastic movies. Uh, like I said many times, he doesn't get enough attention because it's Call all like, which he deserves a lot of attention too. Don't get me wrong. Boris Karloff is, is the monster, but the real villain of the movie is Dr. Frankenstein and yep. a tremendous performance. He's alive. It's alive. <laughs> it's alive. And, and he really, uh, the, when I mentioned Dieter Laser, when he's kissing uh, Dr. Hyder, I mean, it's basically the same idea. He's brought life. He's done this thing. And it's a very similar character. Yep. Yeah. Also my number one, like you can't go wrong with, with Dr. Frankenstein. He's, he's the man. hundred percent. My number one is get out. No. Oh, she threw the curveball on that last one. I like it. <laughs> I think it's a perfect movie. I love it too. I th- uh, I didn't even think of it to be on the list for some reason. I didn't either. But, uh, yeah, it's. I think it's tr- one of the best modern uh, horror movies or best modern movies, really. I agree. And Caleb Landry Jones is on my list twice because he's in Antiviral. And he's in Get Out. Uh. Completely different characters. Yep, those just uh, I should watch that again sometime. Yeah, I haven't seen it since it first came out. But yeah, fantastic movie. Excellent yep. pick, everyone. Yeah, everybody like great picks. So. Always have so much fun doing the the list. I do too. I, I like I like these theme months. Uh, we'll try to do <laughs> too. throughout the year. I know uh, in January we'll do our thirteen. Uh, movies of uh, the year. It's uh, I don't know. I'm trying to get Mitten, my man Mitten, the headless critic, but he he doesn't know if he's seen 13 movies this year. I don't know what's going on with this guy. Man, to slap him around a little bit, keep keep him in check. And back into the fold, man. But I'll, I'll we'll look over it this time, but never again. <laughs> So any honorable mentions anyone wants to uh, bring up? I got a few. I got uh, Dr. Van Helsing. He was almost on my list, but he didn't quite make it. 
um, Dr. Crane, who becomes uh, the Scarecrow in Batman. Oh, interesting. Thought he was a cool character. Uh, Dr. Frankenfurter. That's someone I remember. Kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, And Dr. Uh, Wolf uh, Frankenstein, who's uh, from the son of Frankenstein. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's uh, Basil Rathbone and. I really like that movie too. That's that's one like I don't think it's it's definitely not Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. but I still think it's it's one of the upper tier um, universals. It's before they got desperate and started doing like House of Frankenstein and just you know yeah. jumbling up uh, characters and stuff. Um, any from you, uh, Tristan? No, you guys always cover mine. It's hard for me to come past you. Yeah, the only I think I uh, I think ones you guys all mentioned. Uh, the only one of the fly. Uh, I oh, yeah. prefer the original fly. I know most people like good job, but I like the original. And uh, and Frankenstein's army, which is the Franken oh, yeah. Frankenstein again. But it's really not a perfect movie, but it's very fun, and I That's love great. the idea. And the monsters are tremendous. And uh, the, monsters the, best, rule. the best, really, I think the performances kind of take the movie down for me, except for the guy who plays Dr. Frankenstein. He's excellent. Agreed. Then that whole movie seemed to be ripped off with, um, there was some big budget Hollywood one that did yeah. almost that same movie. Yeah, but, uh, it really was. Early as well. Movie, yeah. I yeah. Mean, it came out just a few couple of years ago. Yeah, I can't remember what it was called. but Yeah, for people not familiar, Frankenstein's crap. Army is about the Nazi uh in world war nazi G- germany world war ii hiring uh victor von frankenstein to frankenstein to uh to create an undead army for 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 the nazis it's actually a pretty cool idea it's it's the monsters are tremendous in it well the, oh, yeah. the, the undead that he creates very creative with some work it could have been a perfect movie but or a great movie maybe not perfect but anyway it's still it's still worth checking out i would check it out and yeah, Dead Ringers and some other ones that we've mentioned. That was very fun. It's been an excellent show. Got a good time, yeah. guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And since it's the last show of 2020, from Troy and myself, we want to say thank you, Trista, for joining the oh. show. Oh, yeah. You've made a great year for us. Oh, thank you. Thank you, guys. I'm, I've been. Um, as you know, like it's such a crazy year for everyone, and this has been really special for me. And it's um, enhanced my knowledge and my community and myself. So, thank you very much. You brought just a ton to the table with us, and just I don't think we've had like not a fun show since you've been with us. No, it's been, so. been just a good time every week. So, we will be back next week. Um, I'm not sure who will be on. Someone will be on. <laughs> we'll and, be on. Yeah, if nothing else, we'll be on. We'll be doing the 13 show at some point for uh best. Maybe we'll do that next week. I don't figure out. Uh, the, all this month long, every month we're gonna have uh help spread the head. You like the show? I think. You also probably <laughs> wouldn't be watching. So uh, share it on social media. Let me know about it, and uh, I keep all the names and. Every month, at least once, we'll uh, give away a prize. And this month, in January, we're giving out uh, Train to Busan Presents Peninsula on Blu-ray. Thanks to Wellgo USA. 
And nice. uh, this is the sequel to uh, Train to Busan, which is an excellent Korean zombie film. One of the best uh, modern uh, zombie movies. And I have actually not watched this yet because I have to give it away. I kind of want to yeah. keep it open. But we're going uh, to give it away. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it yet either. I definitely have to watch that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on this weekend's watch list, I think it's Sunday on BBC America, uh, The Watch Begins, which is it's uh, the late, great Terry Pratchett and... He had a bunch of uh, characters from the disc world that they were the night watch of, uh, they were the city watch of Ankh Morpork and a bunch of great, like crazy uh, fantasy characters. One's a troll, there's a dwarf, there's there's an Igor, there's all all kinds of fun people uh, assembled there and their adventures in the city of Ankh Morpork in the night watch. So, if you have the BBC America, check out The Watch this Sunday. And it's very polarizing so far, because some people think that they're ruining Pratchett's characters. I'm going in with an open mind. We, we will see. You've liked The Stand so far. That's another one I've seen some people hate and some people like. After two episodes, I love it. I, I think um, it's not exact. Like, they've changed some of the characters and, like, the the timeline is is different. They they don't start it from the very beginning. You see some stuff that happens like um, after Captain Trips and everybody's in Colorado, and then they flash back to like their origins, which some people don't like, but I, it's been fine with me. Uh, so far, so good with it. I, I really dig it so far. I'll have, to, I'll have to watch it, but there's so many uh, streaming sites. Every channel has a oh. pay streaming site now. It's, it's crazy, true. But I do want to see it. All right. We'll be back. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year folks. Barbarian Sasquatch says, Happy New Fears. That's kind of Ooh. Happy New Year I've not seen before. I like it. I'm going like to steal it. it. All right. Yes. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. From ancient terrors to the search for modern-day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old-world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. we should have The tomb of Nick Cage. Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Tomb of Nick Cage. Oh,